Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. I'm with Brandon Flanagan, Boynton Beach, FM Tennis Performance Center. Great, great guest tonight. Excited. We're going to talk to Carlos Goffey. We're having coffee with Goffey. Yeah, that would be good. With, uh, um, he's done everything in every aspect of the tennis industry. We'll talk to him about his background, coming up, playing tennis in Brazil, coming over the States, playing tennis. Coach of the Year Award. I know he's a Nike rep. Um, he was, he's author of the book Tournament Tough. We used to use that in our curriculum that we had for coaches, a degree plan. That's how I really met Carlos, and he hired people for his summer camp called Tournament Tough. He ran that for years and years. He's getting back into the business. He's been away from it for a while. Uh, he'll talk to us about that. Amazing. Uh, of our pillars, uh, Harry Hopman. He worked for Mr. Hopman at Port Washington. He worked there with uh, McEnroe. And just think of Garolitis and Fleming, Mary Carrillo, and, of course, Patrick's uh, brothers. I should say John's brothers, Patrick and Mark. Um, with uh, Been in the development of resorts. Um, but how um, I think of uh, Carlos is what he did with Bill Jacobson, another pillar of ours, mm. is it a concept uh, we use all the time with, uh, red light, yellow light, green light. And when you're up by two or three points. So he collaborated with, with Bill Jacobson. And I know that's a point that, that he'll make tonight. Um, major personality. Um, you can just tell he's, you know, he's just a Pied Piper. He's, he's great with kids. Um, anyway, you know, he said that he uh, had looked at some of our podcasts before with old friends. You know, he's, um, I believe he's seven years old now. Um, we talked to him about his son, Josh, uh, he's running, um, he's a head coach at South Carolina. They're one of the top teams in the country now. He's got a great winning culture there. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's call him up. Carlos Goffey. Number 80, right? Number 80, 80 uh, podcast. There's going to be a quiz after this one. Dialing. Dialing for dollars. I was on, I'm off the phone. This is this is new. It's an improvement. Hello, Carlos Goffey. Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Hey, Brand- Carlos. My my pleasure, Brendan. My pleasure, Steve. Yes, sir. Uh, just went through some of the things. Let's start. Uh, get this show rolling with uh, growing up in Brazil, uh, coming to the U.S. Just talks about your junior days because I know that you have expertise in that area. We'll touch on that. But just uh, why don't you start with the beginning days in your tennis journey? Oh boy, that's like uh, two centuries ago now. But you know, <laughs> let's uh, let's let's try to summarize that. Well, uh, uh, basically, um, uh, I am from São Paulo, uh, which is a very very large city, as I'm sure you know uh, most of you you know, uh, the largest city in Latin America. The population, for those that do not know, is hovering around 20 million. So it's a, it's a big city. I'm a big city kid, and um, and growing up in that city, you basically went from home to school to the club, and then uh, that was it. That was your triangle. Uh, and um, and when I was about uh, six seven, my dad uh, was elected the president of the São Paulo Tennis Club. So obviously, being the son of uh, the president of the club, I 
you know, uh, start taking tennis lessons with the pro there. And uh, but uh, those clubs in uh, Latin America, like in Europe, as you know, they are multi-sports clubs. Even though it was called the Tennis Club of São Paulo, but uh, tennis was a major sport in that club. But they had, uh, you know, all the other sports, like swimming and then the big gymnasium, gymnasium that uh, you know, indoor soccer and basketball and handball and uh, karate, judo and and everything else, you know, uh, was uh, offered in, in, in those clubs, those uh, sports clubs. And uh, so I grew up uh, in that kind of environment, um, taking tennis lessons and uh, swimming lessons and playing indoor soccer and volleyball, handball and basketball, etc. cetera. Uh, by the time I was about 11, uh, I started to uh, really focusing in tennis, and then tennis became uh, my life from that point on. Uh, uh, 24-7, basically, and playing tournaments around Latin America. We started out, of course, with the, the city tournaments, the state tournaments, national tournaments, Latin American tournaments. And then by the time I was 17, um, an interesting uh, thing happened uh, at that point for most Europeans and Latin Americans. You, you play junior tennis competitively until you're 17, and then it's time for you to go to college. And unlike the United States, you know, in Europe and uh, Latin America, you cannot uh, play tennis for uh, uh, college. And, and um, you've got to quit uh, playing, you know, those sports at that point, which I did. And um, in those days, you know, what we're talking about, you know, basically in the 60s, you, you didn't have the information that uh, kids of today have. And uh, you just followed the, the path of, the, of your father, basically. So my dad was uh, uh, an attorney. And, of course, you know, my future was to follow these steps and become an attorney. So I um, entered uh, law school because also the system, the educational system in, 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 you know, outside the United States, you basically don't go to a, to college for four years and then you go to medical school and law school like we do here. You basically get into a college as, 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 as a freshman. Is the school of medicine as a freshman, or a school of law, or, or engineering? So I started at law school when I was uh, seventeen years old, and um, and that um, made me quit tennis for about six months. And um, uh, a friend of mine uh, that um, uh, took interest in my game in Argentina when I was fifteen years old go to Argentina at Buenos Aires to play tournaments. And he was a great champion in the 30s and 40s uh, and uh, called me from New York. He was playing the senior, the veteran, in Forest Hills with uh, his old friend, Pancho Segura. And he says, Carlos, I'm here leaving New York after I played here in Forest Hills, the veterans, and I want to stop by some follow on the way to Buenos Aires and, uh, and uh, you know, meet your family and uh, hit some balls. And uh, I, I saw, I'll stop over for a day or two. And that was you know, a dream come true to have this fellow. His name was Alejo Russell. And Alejo was a, a, was a beautiful man. And um, so when he picked him up at the airport, he, he, I said, look, I hadn't been playing tennis for about six months. What? Told him the story. He said, let's go to the club right now. Let's go hit ball. Well, that night, we were sitting in uh, our dining room table, my mom and my family. And mom, dad, and family. And they were all happy that we were hosting Alejo for a couple of days in our home and etc. And within 10 minutes, he basically said uh, to my parents, uh, 
Um, well, look, I, I really feel bad that Carlos had to stop playing tennis. You know, he's got a good, good, good game. And uh, uh, look, my friend Pancho uh, told me that if I knew of any talent down here, that I could send it, you know, to to, to uh, Beverly Hills where he works, and uh, he would you know, train us. Train you know the player and then uh, try to uh, uh, um, to help him. And my mom and my dad said, "Well, you know, he's already going to college and so on." And I said, "No, you know, but I think that he needs to to to, to continue his game." So, long story short, within ten days, I was landing in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and uh, made a deal with my parents that um, I would wanted to take that opportunity and I would come here for a year and then I would go back to the law school. Uh, and uh, so I got the agreement of, the, of my parents and uh, landed in L.A., and that was my start, leaving there and getting here. So from there, uh, from Buncho, I ended up in Dallas playing uh, the National Junior Doors, and then uh, from Dallas went to Orange Bowl, played the Orange Bowl, and then, um, and then all sorts of, uh, 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 of offers or scholarships, because at those days, as you remember, American college coaches, they used to go to Orange Bowl to check out the international talent. They had no idea. There was no internet. There was no, uh, you know, nothing of that sort back then. So the only way that you could see uh, international talent and speak to them, actually, was in the Orange Bowl. So at that point, my uh, decision was to end up, as you know, going to uh, Corpus and playing for our great, great, uh, a, a beautiful man, uh, you know, Coach Bob Mapes, who you know well. Mm-hmm. And then from there, uh, you know, we know that you went to Port Washington. Um, tell yeah. us about that. You had, yeah. an, you had an injury, and then because of that injury, yeah. um, and actually, uh, tell us who your roommate was. That's kind of an interesting story as well. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how life. Uh, you know, it's amazing how we end up in certain sort of a crossroads in life that uh, we take certain steps and then that those steps certainly, you know, shape the, the future of, the, of your life, isn't it? And, uh, and so I was in Corpus um, uh, in my sophomore year. We went to play the uh, NCAA in uh, Georgia and, uh, and uh, I don't remember exactly you know, what round was, but, uh, you know, you know, well, those courts, you know, all of the courts alongside each other, you know, with a big stadium in the back and, uh, love that place. And, uh, yeah. Incredible place. And, um, and, uh, and that basically that was 1972. So he was like the first, the second year of, was the first or second year of the NCAAs, uh, hosted by Ben McGill at, at, at the university of Georgia court. So, um, Going back for an overhead, and, um, and of course, uh, when I landed, I landed on a ball that was rolling from the uh, court next to me and, mm-hmm. um, and broke my left ankle. So, uh, you know, just wanted to continue to play, couldn't. The thing popped up pretty bad and ended up in the hospital with a cast uh, on my foot. So my my plan on going to Europe for the summer, because that was what we did, go to Europe for the summer up at the NCAA, uh, was shot. Uh, and um, uh, um, um, uh, one of the Australian guys that um, uh, those days that, um, from SMU, a friend of mine, that said, that, "Look, uh, you know, we're going up to Amherst to uh, train out there with Mr. Hoffman and uh, 
and uh, maybe you know you want to you want to come in. I have to take this boot off. I mean, only in a few weeks, you know, like three weeks. I had that cast. I said, well, no, I'll go back to Corpus and uh, nurse my ankle, get the boot off, and yeah, that would be a good plan. Uh, growing up there to Amherst, and so I ended up getting to Amherst, and um, and, and amazingly, as you said. Uh, Mr. Hoffman um, uh, put me in uh, in a dormitory, and my um, uh, and my roommate was none other than Chuck Greasy. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the amazing thing about it is, is that you know, hundreds of years later, you know, my son chose to play for him. So mm-hmm. uh, we go back for a long time. Wow! Yeah, we just had a, a delightful chat with him. He was on one of our earlier uh, podcasts. Great, great. I actually, man for I actually listened to it today. I actually oh. listened to it today. You know, and and Chuck is, you know, has so much wisdom. You know, between his ears, he's just ridiculous. I mean, he's just one of those guys that oh, talk about an old timer. That that that's an old timer right there with a lot of wisdom. Yeah, we'll talk about your son Josh. Uh, obviously, now he's uh, following in the footsteps of Chuck Creasy, building championship culture. Um, what was it like uh, at Amherst at that time? Uh, Nick Baltieri was in charge of adults and Harry Ottman was in charge of juniors. What was it like? It was amazing. You know, I had absolutely no idea who Nick Baltieri was. Obviously, Lenny Meyer, as a member, you know, was involved, was also involved in the program. And Mr. Hoffman was there. And uh, the reason why I ended up actually, you know, there's a little, uh, little interesting fact there about Mr. Hoffman is that, um, you know, he's been such a, a guiding hand, you know, for me and a mentor of mine. Uh, again, is one of those things that, uh, uh, that looking back, uh, in hindsight, you, you just see, you know, how certain things really shape your, your life, you know, when you are old as I am and you look back. But uh, um, um, the beginning of the story here, when I said that I went to play in Dallas, uh, the National Junior Board, I was just you know, fresh out of the boat, if you will, under quotes, you know, after spending about a month and a half with Pancho in, um, in, in, in L.A., uh, I was there, like, basically, like I said, uh, you know, the, the, a week, a week and a half after the, after the Open, which was not the Open back then, as you know, but, uh, um, 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 it, you know, I was just, uh, just two, two weeks afterwards, so we're talking about this mid-September, and um, and then Thanksgiving, I uh, was in Dallas uh, playing um, the National Junior Doors, and I remember um, uh, like it was today. Uh, you know, after a couple of rounds, I, I you know uh, I I beat somebody that was supposed to be good, and I had no idea who who, who those guys were in the draw, and. Uh, and so I was happy that, uh, you know, I wanted supposedly a good match over a seated player. And I wanted to get out of the court and go to the hotel and, and call my parents. Well, like I've seen your players do, right? I mean, uh, especially being 500, you know, so many miles away and and uh, thousands of miles away. And uh, and they wanted to know how I was doing and how things were going in Dallas now. And, uh, and as I was leaving the court, you know, this old man, you know, imagine, I think he was even younger than I am right now back then. For sure he was younger than me uh, back then. He must have been in the 60s or early 60s. And, but, but for a 17-year-old, I mean, that's an old man. And I uh, walked out of the court, and this old man came to me and said, uh, 
I watched your match and I liked some of your games. If you, you want to uh, 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 train, you know, uh, with me, just to look me up. I would love to work with you. And, uh, you know, as a 17-year-old boy, kind of brash, you know, at that time, uh, like a young colt, you know, just uh, as always, as always, I came from a family that made, made absolutely sure that we respect our elders. Uh, but, you know, there was always people like this, uh, you know, in the, in the clubs that were elders that, you know, always wanted to give you tips when you walked out of the court. And, and I kind of almost treated like Mr. Hoffman, not knowing who he was, no clue who he was, like that. And um, I said, okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I left, went to the hotel. Well, a month later, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I am in Miami, you know, to play the Orange Bowl. And I'm there in Flamingo Park, and I looked at a, um, a tennis magazine, World Tennis, as you remember, and in the, in the cover of that World Tennis was that same old man that talked to me the month before during Thanksgiving in Dallas. And I read it, and it was Mr. Harry Hoffman, the greatest tennis coach of all time. I, said, I can't believe that I didn't even talk to the man. <laughs> I, said, I can't believe I did that. Well, but anyway, so now two years later, you know, happens in NCAA. I'm a sophomore. The the boy from um, uh, SMU, the um, Australian boys, are going up and told me about Mr. Hoffman. I said, yes, I know who he is. I want to go there. And, uh, you know, about a month later, I joined those boys up in the summer, you know, some, you know, up in uh, Amherst. And, uh, and, and that's basically how it happened. But then you forward that uh, sophomore year. I graduated, go to Europe and play. The idea was play tennis. After six months, seven months, I realized that was not for me. And I wanted to come back and, 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 and grow some roots here in America. And I wanted to start a family. And, uh, and I said, I've had enough. I've had enough of trains and hotels and, um, and matches everywhere. You know, uh, uh, Back then, Steve, as, as we all know, I mean, uh, you know, in the early 70s and, you know, I mean, ATP was like, you know, formed in 73. So, I mean, until 73, there weren't even rankings, if you remember. It was just right. country rankings, basically. Mm. I mean, I played the qualities of Wimbledon uh, because the, the president of the uh, Virginia State Association wrote a letter to Captain Gibson, who was the tournament director at Wimbledon, and said, look, I've got a guy out there in playing college things in America, see if you can put them in a draw. And, you know, and I got into the draw halfway with a letter. Imagine wow. that. And, uh, and so, so, um, so this is, this is, we're talking now, like, you know, sort of a, um, yeah, the end of um, 74, beginning of, 70, of 75. And I said, I want to get back to the States. And, and I was really at the height of my tennis at that point young guy, you know, in the height of my tennis, I didn't want to go to a country club and start teaching tennis at a country club. I wanted to be out, you know, playing with kids and good kids. And I immediately said, I hope Mr. Hoffman remembers me because I knew that he was in Fort Washington in, uh, in New York. So I called him from Denmark and uh, 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 all sorts of uh, you know difficulties in those days to make those calls, as you remember. But I got him on the phone, and I said, Mr. Hoffman, I don't know if you remember me. Of course I do, Carlos. Of course I do. Well, thank you very much. I said, look, this is what's happening. I want to go back 
And I really want to be working with top kids. And, uh, and you have you out there in the academy. Is there a way that uh, you know you can hire me? And he says, of course. You know, come on over. So by the time I actually made it to New York, he already had left Port Washington a couple of months later. Because as you remember, he had bad hips and the cold you know, uh, in New York was not doing any good for his hips. And he came to Florida. And so he told me, he says, look, even though I'm not there anymore, that's a good place for you to get started. I'm going to get my hips sorted, and then I'm going to get something going here in Florida. And then when I do, you know, I'll call you, and you can you, you join me down here in Florida. So it sounds like a plan. So I get to Port Washington, and, um, and, and the story goes that, um, you know, I come in, and, you know, I'm really shy. I don't know anybody in there uh, in New York, anybody in the academy. So I go up to Heisausner, the owner of the academy. I get up there, you know, and and, and, and tell the lady outside, out, out in the shop, I said, I came over here to speak to the owner of the academy. I didn't even know his name. Mr. Hoffman sent me here. Oh, yes, hold on for a second. So, you know, Mrs. Hausner asked me to come into the court, to his office. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, being in his office, uh, Steve, the friend, and you're, you're probably a lot younger than we are. But uh, Heisausner used to sit in an office at the academy with these black and white monitors, you know, around the walls, above you know, all, all, all the walls around his office. Um, of all the 20 courts, he had the monitors, black and white monitors, cameras. So he could see every one of the courts, the bubbles and the, the indoors and the outdoor courts. I mean, everything right there uh, sitting on his desk. And um, he said... Uh, he said, oh, yeah, you're the, you're the guy that Harry hired, right? I said, that's right. Um, yes. Um, well, um, look, why don't you go downstairs, get dressed, and uh, get a cut ball? You see that court up there, court F? I said, yes. There's four guys out there waiting, and uh, you've got them for an hour and a half. And just continue to write something, you know, just like saying, you just bash the box, you know? Mm-hmm. I walked out of his office. Change. I said, what am I going to do? I never really taught a tennis lesson, to be frank with you, I mean, until that point. I mean, you know, I worked at, as, a, as a camp in Amherst a few years before, but, uh, you know, as a young kid, sophomore guy in college, I just did whatever the guy next door to me was doing, and Chuck actually helped me quite a bit, you know, about what to do. You know, hey, kid, you know, what do you do? Chuck was about a couple of years older than me, a few years older than me, so, you know, he was kind of a, a guiding hand to me back then, too. And, uh, and uh, so, so I get in and um, open up the curtain, and the four boys are warming up, and you know, 14, 15 years old. And I said, What am I going to do for an hour and a half with the owner of the academy watching me up there in, in his office? So pressure is on. I said, I've got to do something here other than just starting with like 300 forehands, you know, cross court and, and down the line. So, um, I just saw this kid hit a, you know, make an overhead. I walked in. I said, hey, guys, uh, come on in, guys. Come on in. Look, my name is Carlos. Uh, I'm going to be your coach here for the next hour and a half. And uh, let's make sure we have a good time and make sure that we do, you know, uh, do some good work in here. And uh, I was watching guys warm up. He hit the ball pretty well. And uh, I saw him miss an overhead. We never really paid that much attention on overhead. We don't practice overhead very much. And it's across your game if you don't know what kind of overhead to hit from different spots of the court and depending on the score and et cetera, et cetera. So let's tell you what. I'm going to talk Ben Lott, Brendan Lott, to each one of you guys. And, uh, you know, let's see who's got the best overhead in the court. 
he kind of looked at me and said, what planet has this guy come from? <laughs> and, you know, the third guy comes in, his little, uh, you know, lefty, and, uh, you know, with his little red band, uh, red headband, uh, you know, around his head and breezy hair. And I talk to him, you know, they started a G. I talk him a big deep drop. He goes out there and he nicely. I toss him a short one. He puts it away. I then I talk the third one for him to go back. He lifts his arm and says, oh, you know, my leg's hurting. I'll sit out. And I'll wait until the next drill. I said, wait a minute. I mean, you were not, you know, you were running during the warm-ups in here. What's going on? You don't like the drill. And he looks at me and he says, when do we hit more than two overheads in a, you know, in a point in a match? That was John McEnroe teaching me how to coach in my very first lesson that I gave to him. That's how it started. It's an amazing story. Huh. Yeah. I, I seem to remember going back to how you started your tennis journey in the U.S. And uh, there was a conversation you had with your parents where, where you had agreed to one year yeah. What uh, what happened to that agreement, or how was there a change in that initial agreement with your parents, and what was that conversation like? Well, you know, after they saw that I was uh, really happy, you know, there in Corpus, that they came to visit me, you know, right there. I mean, a few months later, uh, you know, uh, when I started Corpus, I started in January, right after the Orange Bowl, you know, right in the spring, just jumped right into the, into the season. And, uh, and they came in around, uh, you know, a few months later, and they, you know, I told them all about Coach and uh, and uh, so on. And when they met Coach and they met my teammate, they realized that, uh, you know, I was safe and I was doing what I loved, and uh, and they were just a hundred percent supportive, and and that's what ended up changing. You know, the amazing thing about Coach Mays, as you probably know, there was a documentary that uh, was made by. Uh, by um, uh, 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 by Aaron Jose, who was Humphrey's son, and uh, and, and um, it was called the, the Sons of Mates because Coach Mates and um, and Mrs. Mates they had uh, five daughters, and um, and that's the reason why Coach Mates. A lot of people don't know why Coach Mates actually started the team at US, at UCC. The reason was that he never had a son, and uh, the team became you know the team guys. You know, his son, you know, I mean, we used to go to, to the Mapes' house, you know, for for Easter and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, dinners, you know, Mrs. Mapes would bring us in and here we were, you know, like six guys and, you know, and the five girls, you know, uh, you know it, it was an incredible family, you know, um, uh, situation and it was just so warm. I mean, we felt, uh, we felt part of the family. We were a family, basically. And, uh, and that's how tennis is incredible, you know, Steve uh, and Brandon. Um, it's it, it's a circle, uh, you know. It always it's a, it it always comes back. It always comes back. You're always in a circle in tennis, you know. When you meet people, and then years and years later, as you as we talked about Mr. Hoffman, and, and we talked about Jeff Christie, well, you know, uh, uh, take a look at this. Humphrey uh, uh, was the sen- a senior when I was a freshman. And, um, and after all those years, we're talking about 1970, you know, uh, I started a project right now, uh, 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 as you know, and the fellow that is producing my project, believe me or not, is Humphrey's son. Can you believe that? Hmm. 
stuff all these years. With uh, so many things with John McEnroe, uh, you could go back a few years in your journey when you went to work with Pancho Seguro. You're just a year older than Jimmy Connors. Connors must have been there when you were working with Seguro. Well, we're actually the same age. Well, you know, I'm I'm from 1952. So, so okay. Jimbo, yeah, Jimbo and I, Brian Godfrey, Al Sullivan. Uh, uh, Guillermo Vilas, you know, we were all the same crop. Same, you know, Sandy Mayer, uh, you know, those guys were, we were all from 52. And uh, in fact, uh, I have a, story, a beautiful story to tell you about Jimbo. So, you know, here I am at, um, in Beverly Hills at the, uh, you know, over, you know, out there. Just um, imagine, you know, 17 year old boy from Brazil, uh, not speaking very well English. You know, my English was basically. High school English, like uh, the Americans have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Spanish. Yeah, uh, you know, and I figured that I could actually speak English before I left Brazil. When I got here, I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't understand anything. I couldn't say much at all. So it, it was a shock there. But uh, you know, Pancho is a, you know, a character. I don't have to tell you about Pancho Segura, who he was, and uh, and he immediately, uh, you know, just uh, opened his arms and said, "Oh, you are little." You know, kids, and uh, you know, and Alejo and I played so many tournaments. You know, back in the forties. You know, we were traveling around the world way back when. And I'll take care of you, kid. And of course, you know, you know, at the same, at the same age group, there were three other boys playing at the club. One was Jimbo. The other one was Panther Segura, which was uh, you know Puncher's son. He's also from '52 my age and Jimbo's age and um and and um um uh Dean, and of course the, Dean Martin's son fellow, right? Dean Martin's son exactly right yeah so 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 Dean Martin's son who ended up in that tournament I mean that film you know Rackets remember that he made that tour, that, that film called the Rackets I don't know if you ever saw yeah, that yeah no but definitely yeah, I saw that yeah yeah and, and so so, um, um, you know, those two guys, those three guys were out there. And I was just hitting balls with those three guys. There were, the four of us that were 17 years old. And um, never forget, it was just another incredible uh, episode in my life, in my tennis life. You know, after a week, you know, of hitting balls with these guys, already kind of becoming friends and speaking, you know, sign languages with them, but hitting balls and playing math, playing stats with these three guys and playing doubles with these three guys. I think lunch is out there at the club with the three guys. I became friends, you know, with them. And mm-hmm. one day, you know, uh, uh, Jimbo just said in the morning, you know, we were warming up and he said, hey, you know, come over to the LA Tennis Club. I'm playing this afternoon out there. I said, oh, really? Yeah, man, there's a big tournament out there. And, uh, you know, like, uh, I got a wild card. And I'm playing this afternoon. I'm playing against Roy Emerson this afternoon. I said, I can't believe that. Because I had heard of Roy Emerson, you know, back in Brazil. But I had no idea that, you know, Labor was my idol. An idol that I never saw play or, you know, didn't know anything about. But I was my idol. Scott Labor and, and Roy Emerson. And Jimbo was playing Roy Emerson. And um, I said, I can't believe it. Did you play Roy Emerson? Yes. I'll be there. You know, I've got to find the right. Oh, Spencer will take you. Okay. Spencer, you take me? Yes, we go. We ended up going to the Lake of the Club there. And believe me or not, guys, I watched Jimbo play ammo uh, on the court next to a swimming pool, and I was standing on the trampoline watching this match. Mm-hmm. 
And I will tell you, I'll go one step farther. That match was uh, the first tournament, I believe, that the nine-point tiebreaker was being played. And Jimbo beat Roy Emerson, who was at that point like number two or three or, you know, in the world, depending on on who was who on who was doing the rankings. You know, as you remember, you know, the rankings were done by tennis journalists back right, then. Yeah. You know, and basically they chose, you know, the top ten in the world, but was basically, you know, subjective voting, you know, about how how each one of them did in the different slams and so forth. And uh, and, and and Jimbo beat Ammo, and believe me or not, if you check the scores, I haven't checked those scores in a long, long time. But there were mm-hmm. that were tied the nine-point tiebreaker and ended up at 5-4 with a double set point for both of them. And Jimbo won both of them. Wow. Nine. It was incredible. No, it's tennis history that I know about, but it's, it's great to talk to someone who was there. Um, actually, going back to Amherst, um, I went to work as a volunteer for Riney. I worked for the company, but uh, I was at the end of one summer junior camp, I think Deerfield Academy. And then I heard such great things about Riney, fifth grade teacher from uh, Wisconsin. And he was the right. go-between. You know, with their, They'd go in a room and it'd be Nick Balateri and Harry Hopman and you know, they'd be discussing the use of the courts or whatever. But uh, I, I said, well, who's in charge? He said, Mr. Hopman was in charge when they would, uh, when they would go into the room. with. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Rod Laver being one of your idols. Uh, what was it about Laver that struck you or that, that struck a chord as far as uh, in- well, inspiring you to play more tennis? Well, because, you know, because, as you know, I'm talking now 1970, right? So mm-hmm. the Rocket had just won his second Grand Slam in 69, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and and that for a 16-year-old in 69, I mean, I'm from 52. I was like 69 or 17 as well, you know, or turning 17. Yeah. And uh, turning 17, you know, and, 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 and the news, you know, reached Brazil even, you know, mm-hmm. that this man had actually won the Grand Slam won all of the majors, not only this year, but he had done it before, you know, in 62. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Uh, you know, so I, I couldn't believe it. This is the reason why Rocket was my my idol, because for me, you know, in those days, uh, you know, imagining, you know, our rich history of the game. I mean, I was a studious of the game, you know, since then. My dad used to, you know, I'll never forget. My father gave me a, the first in his book, I was like 12, 13 years old. He was, uh, you know, Bill Tilden, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the... Match play and spin the, of the ball. The spin of the ball, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I did not know English to read that book. You know, my dad didn't speak English. Uh, and, and, but he bought that book and he said, look, this is a book by a guy that was a great champion, you know, in the United States. And it was probably the only tennis book at that point, you know, that my dad could buy for me. And I and he says I know you won't understand it, but you know here's a dictionary, and in the least you can you know. And I used to, like at 12, 13 years old. I used to you know at night I used to try to read the page of the book, and I couldn't understand it. And I tried so hard to to understand. I would ask my teacher in, in school, "Can you translate one of these pages, please? I want to I want to learn what this guy's saying. He's a great champion, and I play tennis." 
But in the very first page, that's one thing I never forget, too, is that, uh, you know, Bill Tilden, this great champion from yesteryear, said, if I had a dime for every time I thought about quitting tennis, I would have been a millionaire. And I never forgot about that. Mm. That's interesting. Uh, Carlos, what about Tony Palifax? I once heard a young coach uh, uh, tell me that uh, Chris Garner said that, uh, and I, I'd watched Palifax work with McEnroe, and uh, by that time, McEnroe was already an established player. I mean, he was 18 years old, a semifinalist at Wimbledon. Um, and certainly you can look at clips of Palifax on YouTube, but I remember Chris telling me that uh, Palifax's game style is very similar to McEnroe's. Could you comment on that? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, Tony also played for Corpus Christi. I don't know if you know that. No, but I he was know also, that. yeah, he played for Corpus as well, yeah. Was and, he, there? So uh, he was there when you were there? No, no. He's, he's older than me. Yeah, okay, he's older right. than me. Thought, so, yeah. yeah, so he was already gone by the time I was in Corpus. You know, he was, uh, you know, basically in Corpus, we actually recruited, you know, ourselves. You know, we, we were a bunch of Latin Americans that basically recruited the other friends, you know, and that's how, how we went there in, in, in Corpus. So um, uh, Tony, because he was Mexican, of course, I mean, you know, he came in, you know, years, I mean, you know, in, in his war. And uh, one of the guys that came in after Tony was a guy by the name of Vicente Zarazua. Zarazua was a great player, played States Cup for, for, for Mexico as well. And uh, uh, he was there already as a, assistant for Coach Nate when I was there as a freshman. So Tony must have been uh, gone from Corpus already. By the time I got there in 70, I think Tony had gone had been gone already for four years or so. So Tony um, was, at, as, we, as we all know, um, he was working at Port uh, prior to uh, Mr. Hoffman coming in. And, um, and when Mr. Hoffman came in, when I got and brought Mr. Hoffman uh, to court, you know, I think that there was some kind of a, you know, I think Tony felt that, you know, he he was going to be second fiddle, you know, to Mr. Hoffman at that point. And, and so um, Tony uh, did not last very long at all as soon as um, Mr. Hoffman came in and went to um, Lenko, uh, another indoor club that's not too far from Fort Washington. So by the time I actually got to court, you know, uh, Mr. Hoffman was gone, uh, as I as I said in the top of the conversation, and and Tony was you know was not there already for a couple of years, uh, a year or two. You know, uh, uh, by the time I got there, so um, uh, you know, of course, I met Tony, met uh, 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 Glencove uh, several times, going out there to Glencove, and he was there, a wonderful man, and. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean Tony. Tony was um, a guy that uh, prior to Mr. Hoffman coming in there, you know, when Mac was you know nine, ten, eleven years old, like uh, like when I got there, Mac was uh, uh, turning fifteen. Uh, by the way, you know, uh, a couple of days ago was Mac's birthday. For your information, if you don't know, and um, and he's getting up there, but he, back then was uh, he was uh, he was fourteen, fifteen. Patrick was you know nine. 10 years old, you know, at that point. So when Tony was there, you know, uh, Patrick was probably was not even playing, and, and, and John and Mac was probably around 12, you know. So, so Tony was doing a lot of the day's work 
you know, uh, with uh, with Matt uh, before Mr. Hoffman came in there. No doubt about it. And the Beavers was there as well, as you know. Peter Fleming was there as well. So they all had, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, the experience of, uh, you know, being with Tony when Tony was the head, the director of, of the Port Washington program until Mr. Hoffman came in. Wasn't and, it wasn't uh, Dick Stockton? I know he's older, but wasn't he there as well? Like he, like he was yeah, there. Yeah, he still was. Yeah, because he was from there. You know, he is from Long Island. You know, Dick. You know, he was there as well. He was older. Dick is about a couple of year, couple of years older uh, than, uh, than than myself. And so, so um, you know, and um, um, Dick is, is is kind of a the same crop as uh, you know Rocco and uh, you know. Um, Bobby McKinley, you know, that's, you know, a couple of years older than, than we were, probably from 1950 or, yeah, mm-hmm. probably were born in 50 or 49 or 50. Carlos, I remember uh, Ted Koppel, I think it was Nightline News, and he mm-hmm. was he was interviewing, it was uh, Mr. Hobbin, Vic Braden was on, it was just the two uh, tennis legends, and Mr. Hobbin said that he loved the New York City kid, how they were uh, street smart, could you elaborate upon that? Well, I tell you why I would I would think that he would say something like this. It's because um, Mr. Hoffman um, uh, made it very clear. You know, he was not a man of a lot of words, as you probably remember. But he didn't have to speak, did he? I mean, you know, he he commended such a respect. Not only because you heard or learned of what he had done in the past. With uh, you know eighteen twenty, you know uh, Davis Cup titles. Granted, you know there was uh, you know uh, back then you know you 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 would uh, you you would end up in the challenge round. I mean you know if you won the year before, but still, I mean you know still yeah, to be able to have won that many and the players that you know that were in his team. I mean Labor, Strawley, Rose Bowl, you know, and uh, Ammo. I mean it's it just just a Hall of Fame. I mean you know a player. So um, he commended tremendous respect. But one thing that Mr. Hoffman told me uh, that stuck when I was really young, and uh, and then later on when I you know even came to visit him here in in Florida in Largo, and uh, he came to visit me in Seabrook Island in Charleston, South Carolina. We stayed uh, in touch quite a bit because he was such a guiding hand of uh, of my career uh, as in the coaching career, and. Uh, but two things that Mr. Hoffman taught me, uh, at least that I got from him and that I have uh, uh, religiously applied to my uh, coaching methodology and philosophy. One was uh, was the discipline. He was a disciplinary. He used to say to me, he says, Carlos, I'm not a coach, a tennis coach. You know, I'm a disciplinary. And, uh, and boy, did I see him discipline a lot of good players, and the way he did it was incredible, you know, it was not with words, it was basically with his racket and a, and a, a cart of balls, and, and he had a drill that, that basically was sending balls and everywhere, feeding balls to everywhere, until he stopped, you know, I kind of used the same kind of drill in my camps for 30-some years, but at least the kids knew how many balls we were actually having to, to go out with Hawk, who missed the hot one, he didn't know. It was up to him when you actually when he felt that he, he that he would stop, and that was a way of him disciplining, you know, uh, uh, a wild buck, if you will. And um, and uh, and the other thing 
was uh, you know, self-reliant. I mean, uh, you know, there was no there was no talking to Mr. Hoffman about uh, you know being a baby on the court. I mean, you know, he was from from the old country, and uh, you know, the Australians were rough, and, uh, and 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 he just basically wanted kids that you know were self-reliant, reliant, uh, you know, early on. And and I think that um, you know New Yorkers, you know, think quite a bit, particularly those days. You know, you had uh, no choice but to be self-reliant because um, you know you take a look at Mac, for instance. I mean, when I met him, you know, as I said, he was fourteen. Uh, he would take two trains, you know, from uh, from uh, Manhattan, you know, to Port, and then would walk from the train station at Port to the to the academy, which was a nice long walk, and. Uh, you know, and then in the morning, he would just, uh, you know, from Douglas and would take a train to Manhattan, you know, to go to school. So, I mean, he grew up, basically, in trains and subways and in, 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 in the middle of, you know, heavily populated um, uh, metropolitan area. You know, you know you've got you to gotta become uh, mature uh, soon, you know, and not baby. And, uh, and then, of course, you know... Uh, Matt's family, I mean, with Mr. Matt and Mrs. Matt, they were very, very, you know, into self-reliance early. I mean, they, 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 they had those boys, they had those boys, uh, uh, you know, they raised those boys tough and, and, and right. And I had tremendous respect for Mr. and Mrs. Matt, the way that they, that they raised those boys. Um, uh, I remember clearly that, you know, I remember one time, you know, playing an exhibition, taking Matt when he was 15 up to upstate New York to play a, an exhibition for a club and a friend of mine and, you know, picked him up and got with him and went up there and played the exhibition, came back, you know, dropping him off and this is Max saying, you know, come on over, let's have some dinner calls with us and all that, okay? And um, how did Johnny do it? You know, man, he's a little rocket labor out there. I mean, you know, the three of us were like pros and teaching pros, but, you know, your son was like the... Uh, the star of the, of the doubles, you know, act so that we played out there. And, uh, you know, he's a little rocket labor. And Mr. Mack was caught. Let's make sure that, you know, that we don't start talking about that because, you know, what, these boys are going to go to law school like I did. And, you know, and let's not even talk about that. That was like Mr. Mack, you know, I mean, in those days. So uh, I think that's, you know, answering your question in a roundabout way. I think that's why uh, I think that, uh, 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 Mr. Hoffman you know, had a lot of respect for those kids. I mean, they both have it. He was the same way, you know? So, you know, they were, they were, they were brought up, you know, in a talking ground. Yeah, well, Vitas Carolitis, we'll come back to that. But one thing with uh, Leon and Billy Lip, both uh, professional umpires, they used to train our students, our tennis teaching students, to be mm-hmm. umpires. And, and I remember they both talked about how McEnroe, he didn't miss any, didn't miss a beat. If they switched uh, one ball kid... They switched somebody in a chair, or he just knew he street smarts. But and then he, I remember uh, Leon Lip saying that you know he grew up just watching people every day, getting on the train and going to the Trinity School. And but uh, yeah. for your, to turn the clock just ahead by a few years, in 1979, I was still I was still working for the same company. I started with the company a few years after you, All American Sports. I remember being out in the Hamptons. Um, Andy Brandy was the director of tennis, the overall yeah. director, and I was the director of the camp. But uh, in 79, Vetus Carolitis, what a personality, the late Vetus. But why don't you uh, elaborate on that? They were in the U.S. Open final. 
playing each other. Just, oh. just a handful of years after you were on the court with them. Well, well, but you know, I was very much still involved. I mean, you know, with the boys. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, 1979. What happened to me, you know, in Fort um, was interesting. I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know this. This this other step that happened. I, you know, so so um, as I started at Fort, um, it was interesting because you know now there was a tremendous vacuum there. Um, you know. Uh, Tony had left, you know, when Mr. Hoffman came in. Mr. Hoffman had left, and all of a sudden, you know, there were 16, 18 pros, you know, in the academy, but there was no director, you know, in there. And uh, and I remember Mr. Zausner, you know, uh, I was, you know, one of those 17 guys, you know, in, in, in girls, you know, there. And um, and the talk amongst the pros is like, you know, who's going to, you know, who's, you know, Mr. Zausner's going to hire. And, uh, and, and so... We would see Arthur Ashe coming in and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, talking to Mr. Zausen and people talking, you know, maybe, you know, he's going to hire, you know, Arthur. And then um, Fred Stolle was around New York in those days and Fred would come in and, you know, the pros would say, maybe, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to hire Fred Stolle. And, um, uh, and, and another guy that used to come around all the time, it was Jimmy Scott. And uh, from Manhattan and play with the play with us out there, and I became really, good, you know, became really good friends with Gene. Uh, like I said, I was you know playing decent tennis at that time. I was at the height of my tennis, and I was a young guy. And uh, so he used to come in from the city, and he, you know, hey, can we play two out of three? Yeah, let's play two out of three. And I was just going to set up a, a certain time and go out there and just go at it with Gene. And um, and after a couple of years, you know, uh, um, by the way, I ended up being um, appointed and I was uh, director of the program by Mr. Zausner, which I, I, you know, basically didn't even know how to handle that. Uh, and, uh, and and that's another story, for, you know, to, to write a book about how that happened. But but it, it became like a real, real chore for a young guy like me. I would have, uh, I would drive 30 minutes from my house in Long Island to get to the academy at 7.30 in the morning. And, and I don't have to tell you guys, you know, in the winter, that's not a fun time to be driving out there. And uh, and I would come back home at 11 o'clock at night. You know, it basically was like at 7.30 leaving my house and, uh, you know, and coming back at 11 o'clock. You know, winters were horrible. And raising a young family, my first daughter was born in New York. And uh, my first child was a daughter, my daughter, which was born in New York in Manhattan. And, uh, it was just a real grind. But it was a, a stepping stone, my first job, and I needed to do that. And um, and then uh, Jim, actually, uh, got me, um, you know, a job in um, at uh, Orange. So I ended up leaving uh, the academy, you know, and went to, to South Orange. But while I'm in South Orange, Matt and Peter and Vitas would come in, you know, to, to South Orange, and we get uh, our friendship from, from New York. And... Uh, because as you remember, Gene used to have that um, mutual benefit life open, you know, at the club. And so it was a big tournament uh, every summer. And uh, so I kept, you know, the relationship, the friendship with the boys and, uh, and Mary, too. You know, Mary was part of the whole team back then. And, uh, and, and um, in 79, you know, we were there, you know, sitting in the uh, player's box, uh, Peter Plumbing, uh, Peter Rennert, uh, myself, uh, you know, and everybody else. And, uh, you know, and we watching Max play Vitas in the finals uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the U.S. Open. And, uh, you know, and, and Mac and Peter beat uh, Smith and Luck. I mean, you know, imagine. 
the kids from the academy, you know, took over the uh, uh, the, the U.S. Open. Oh, at that time, Smith and Lutz were considered the best uh, doubles team, definitely in the U.S. and perhaps the world. Uh, and our listeners, when you say Mary, Mary Carrillo, everyone in tennis knows Mary Carrillo. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Brady. She, she basically grew up across the street from Mac. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, yeah, Douglastown, yeah. Yeah, right, up, right across the street from Mac, yeah. So, the as Carrillo. As, so as you're, as you're you know, starting this journey in tennis and you're working with McEnroe and at the Port Washington Club, you're – it, your difference in age was between yourself and say McEnroe and Fleming was, was not so dramatic. Was it? Is it just a, a couple of years? Yeah. We were buddies. We yeah. became buddies basically. Yeah. And so you, there was, I guess there was this balance between say Harry Hopman, who was, as you described him, you know, much older and then yeah. uh, yourself who was closer in age. How would you, um, how would you look at that closeness in age and how that changed the coaching style of, of working with them and, and just describe that difference, that, 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 that different dynamic between yourself and, say, those guys versus the dynamic between them and Mr. Hopman? Well, you know, and particularly with, uh, with them, you know, perhaps you know, I think he has something to do with that uh, self-reliance that we are talking about mm. uh, in, um, in, in um, uh, you know, you know, these guys were, I mean, as I always say, I mean, Mac was, Mac was, you know, Mac was more mature, tennis-wise, you know, at 15, than, than any, any, not only his peers, but I mean, you know, most of the other tennis players, including myself, you know, because the way he viewed the game, the way he looked at the game, the way he approached the game, he was, you know, I mean, mature beyond his, beyond his years. I mean, it's, um, and and so 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 there were people that did not appreciate the way he looked at it, you know. And there were people like me that basically not only appreciated but learned from the way he looked at the game. And I think that that uh, that that was major part of my proximity, you know, to, to Mac, and and and, it, and maybe the distance from other people, you know, mm-hmm. from you know with Mac back then, because some people just. You know, got antagonized by the way he played. You know, and they didn't understand. You know who Mac was, and I did. So I think that was the difference. And um, you know, I had nothing but respect for Mac, while Mac had to deal with a lot of adversity with other people that did not understand it. You know, so I think that that's uh, that's the dynamic that we're talking about. And then, of course, uh, you know, Vitas was the same way, and, uh, and 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 Peter Fleming was the same way, and. And Raymond, you know, they all are guys that were just very, very self-reliant, very much on their own. I mean, you know, they just did not, you know, they did not need, uh, you know, a coach to be carrying the rackets. I mean, you know, and let's face it, guys. I mean, you know, the, 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 the game has changed tremendously. I mean, I traveled around the world, you know, with three little Max Fly Dunlops. And, you know, in my, in my first was, a, you know, a burgundy, you know, Dunlop cover that I put my passports in my in my traveling desk, you know, the side of my Desert Dunlop cover, you know, climbing up in a in an airplane and going to Europe to play tournaments. Uh, you know, there was no coaches. I mean, you know, Labor didn't have a coach. I mean, you know, Rose didn't have a coach. You know, people didn't have coaches like they have right now. And they survived. You know, like it's been a different time, as you know. So you were you were one of the first actually to travel with players. Um well, let, let, Go ahead, Carlos. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I yeah, I did. You know, look up but the, the many, many tournaments that I traveled in John, you know, in Peter, uh, you know, were tournaments that, um, um, you know, it was you know, 
things, the way things were, it was like, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to be in such and such a place. You want to get up there and, you know, and help me out? And then we can go to this other place, you know, in a couple of weeks, man. Yeah, don't think. You know, we just go for a couple of weeks and, uh, and be with those guys, you know, playing, you know, in, in the different tournaments. That's how things went in those days. Well, to follow up on Brandon's question, we had a podcast of 20 different types of tennis pros. And um, I was brought up and said, you're not supposed to categorize people. Now, with Brazilians, I one time was helping a tennis team out. They had five of the starters were from Brazil, the boys from Brazil. There was a, me, there was a movie with that title, Boys from Brazil. But Brandon and I both worked with a coach from Peru, Roberto Cala, and we were working with a young kid from Brazil. And we weren't with him very long. He was with us just you know maybe three, four months. And unfortunately, in his pathway, I don't think that he really got lucky and got connected with, you know, the right coaching because he was a phenomenal athlete. I remember on his resume, you know, reprimanding him because he had put down that he was a hitting partner for a young guy who's done quite well in doubles, Raven Claussen. And I remember Raven, mm-hmm. I remember having Raven sit down with him and telling Jonathan, um, you got to be kidding me, dude. It goes. Yeah. Because I just wish I had your athletic ability. But what Roberto told me about Brazilians, he said, well, Steve, you have to remember, they're, they're packing on Thursday to go to the beach. Friday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they go to the beach. And then on Monday, they have to rest. So they're only going to practice Tuesdays and Wednesdays. But, 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 but one thing with that, again, you're not supposed to categorize people, but I'm coaching, and I know Brandon has as well, I'm coaching so many kids that are so tight. I mean, I told a kid today, and I know with – your background tournament tough. We're right. playing. We're playing right by ninety five, which is a lot of noise. And right. I said, I'm watching you. And my opinion is, there is more noise going on between your ears than that twelve lane highway. Isn't that amazing? And um, but anyway, that's. I, I just remember Roberto saying that. Yes, Steve. He's only going to practice on Tuesday, Wednesday. Remember, he's from Brazil. But the Brazilian, <laughs> the, the Brazilian. I think of the Brazilian soccer style versus the German soccer style. You know, it's, right. and I, and I, I know right. so little about soccer, but international yeah. football, but it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, yeah. sidebar. Uh, well, you know, it, it, but I, but I, but I think that along the same, the same, the same, um, uh, topic, uh, uh, is that, um, is that, um, you know, we were talking about, about Mac. I mean, it, it, you know, Mac looked at the game, uh, you know, differently than, than, than a lot of the, the kids in those days. You know, we're, 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 we're looking at the game. I mean, he looked at the competitive side of the game rather than the technical side of the game. And, and, and the athletic side of the game, he basically, you know, he played soccer for his high school at Trinity. He played, uh, he played uh, basketball. I mean, Matt used to come in. I mean, literally, when he was 14, 15 years old, he would come in and start playing tennis in March to get ready for the Easter Bowls, you know, Hamilton's Easter Bowl. And then played through the summer, you know, and you know the nationals. And then in the fall, he would go back and um, he would start playing soccer and, and basketball for, for in, in school, you know. And 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 he just did that until you know the year before he got before seventy seven when he got to the semis of, of Wimbledon and he went in there to play the juniors. Ended up playing the qualies and, and we all know ended up uh, playing Jimbo in the semis and could have taken Jimbo, but uh, he couldn't handle the the fact that. Uh, that, uh, you know, then what, you know, in the finals, you know, how am I going to come in to that center court against Boyd? So, you know, that was the end of the 77 run there. But but Mac was all about competing on the tennis court, you know, so the maturity, his, 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 his maturity, competitive maturity at that age 
was, uh, you know, like a street smart, like uh, you, know, you were mentioning, you know, it's street smart. I'm here. Is, this is a game between two minds. And, uh, you know, this is not a game for about four hands and back. And, uh, I, I often say to people, I said, look, you know, Mac has one grip that doesn't even have a name. You know, he holds the racket like between the continental and, and, and eastern forehand, somewhere in there in the middle. And, 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 and with that one grip, he does everything that he's done it, you know, in tennis. Me, as a young coach, you know, seeing this across the net when he was 15 years old, I remember telling Mac, with my stupidity, you know, at that point, saying, Mac, uh, you know, look, uh, you know, you're doing okay now, you know, in the juniors, in the 16s, and, uh, but look, man, you know, by the time you get to the 18s, if you don't turn that grip a little more, so you can whip that forehand a little more, or turn that grip a little bit more into the back, and so you can roll that back, you're not going to be able to get done, man, you know, when the, when the balls are flying a little faster across the neck. And, he, you know, he would look at me and say, I'll find a way, man. I'll find a way. <laughs> I'll find a way, man. You know, yeah, I'll find a way, man. You know, that was like, you know, I go, I don't think that this is going to work, man. And, and of course, you know, it is. Right? So, so there is no right and wrong, you know, in our game. I mean, after all these years that you and I have been around the game, you know, there's only effective and non-effective strokes. Okay. I mean, when, when you look at a, at Palazzaghetti, you know, winning French Open, you know, and, 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 and you look at him playing, you know, with the same side of the racket from forehand to back, and you, how can you say that there's only one, you know, there's a, there's a wide way to hit the ball? <laughs> yeah, I know, we, always tell, we always tell people that there will always be individuality. The strength of the individual will come out. We actually had a mom tell a national coach just a few days ago, and her, her husband was a college quarterback, said, hey, you teach, you teach kids fundamentals, you teach them the same fundamentals, and then, right. then the strength of the individual will come out. You know, no, no two players uh, do anything the same. I mean, it comes down to just like, exactly. but we do have an alphabet. We do have a numerical system. You know, we do have to, we do have, to have some rhyme and reason. Uh, coming back to Mr. Hopman in respect, um, I saw Gerlaitis uh, take lessons from Warren Woodcock, Fred Stolle, and Ian Crookenden. And as you, yeah. talk, you talk about the different circles, but when, you know, people like Mac and Woodcock was the Forest Hills, as you remember, you know? Yeah, yeah no, he was, uh, he was a clever guy. He was at the Boca Hotel, and yeah. he was Forest Hills, and he had two, yeah. two seven-month contracts. So he, how, how he pulled that off? He was a pretty good, yeah. a, a pretty good yeah. businessman. Uh, I remember or, or at least some money to take to the horse track. But, um, but the respect, you know, and McEnroe, Gerlitis, uh, who obviously legends of the game, when they would they just revered uh, – Mr. Hobbin, is it true that Mary Carrillo, I've always heard this, uh, she was the only woman who coached for Hop? Is that true? I don't know that. But, you know, I mean, Mary was uh, such a, you know, beautiful, you know, what a tremendous, uh, 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 you know, girl she was and the lady and, uh, you know, what a great personality. I mean, Mary, I mean, I can I can hear Mary's voice. I mean, uh, you know, and, uh from a mile away, and I know it's Mary. You know, I mean, so it's just uh, she is uh, she's really something. I don't know if that's a fact, but uh, she obviously was part of that whole that whole group. You know, no, but I remember, when you look at the, yeah, no, I, I remember, uh, um, you know, just being told that you know, but you always want to ask because I don't really like hearsay to ask somebody who was you know around at that time and yeah, um, the uh, but. Um, no, the, the profession has always been in this country, not not necessarily in every other country, but uh, so many male versus female coaches. Uh, but what a, what a career she's had! And I understand that she uh, 
they just said, hey, kid, we need somebody, and they put her behind the mic, and she was just a natural. Oh, yeah. She's got a tremendous personality. She's always, always had a beautiful personality. But, uh, but you know, talking about, uh, you know, the competitive side of the game, I mean, look, you know, I think that we have gotten to a point that, you know, that, that we forgot the basics of what a tennis match is about. I mean, what is a tennis match about? What tennis match is about is that you hit, you hit for 10 minutes out of the hour, out of every hour. And then there's 50 minutes that, uh, of every hour that you're playing a match. You're not even hitting a ball. <laughs> I mean, people just don't realize that, 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 that all coaching is basically coaching the 10 minutes. And what happens to the other 50 minutes of the hour when you're not hitting a ball? You know, where's the coaching on that? You know, and, uh, and, and so that's what I took pride in, 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 in doing it because of what I learned uh, from Mac and prior to Mac, you know, believe me or not, when I was 19 years old, I was in Switzerland playing the Lea Cup, which was the Davis uh, Cup for 21 and under. And uh, and I was playing a, a warm-up tournament in Geneva uh, before the Galea Cup uh, match, and, um, uh, and 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 I and I saw this guy from uh, Italy by the name of uh, Bebby Marlon, you know, and he was forty something at that point. I was nineteen, and I couldn't believe that this guy actually, you know, was was a great player in the you know years before. Uh, you know, you, you look at his records. I mean, he basically. I mean, he beat uh, Dravini and Big Budge, and, and uh, you know, I think that he won the Italian Open many times, and um, and that was mine as a French or whatever. I mean, he did. I mean, I remember Stan Smith telling me that you know that he played um, um, Betty in, um, uh, in in on, I think his first Wimbledon, and he was already like you know the top the top guy, was, you know, ready to win Wimby. and uh, and he, he faces this guy Betty Merrill, and he said. You know, it's going to be easy. And he looks at me and Stan says, you know what? It was like five and a fifth or something. You know, I don't remember exactly what the scores were. But I mean, Stan even said, I couldn't believe that that guy looked so awful. And he was that good of a player. And yeah, in with, fact, uh, my, go ahead. In fact, my book, when I wrote the book, uh, you know, with Matt in, uh, in 83 and then we published in 84, the, the first sentence for the book, you know, basically says, Betty Merlo could not play tennis, and yet, you know, he did this and this and this and this. So, so that was a, a, a shock to me to, to see a, 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 a that old man, Italian, you know, in the forties, and the beating beating guys like you know, my age, nineteen. I didn't play against him, but I watched him beat guys like you know, they were around my age, nineteen, twenty years old. How did he do that? No, you know, yeah. that pushing. Go ahead, yeah, for our listeners, he. When he hit the ball, you couldn't hear the ball be hit. I mean, he just couldn't break a pane of glass. But uh, talk about oh. being the, the spoiler and, and bringing the worst out in people. Yeah, I mean, and and so you start learning about the game, but the game goes a uh, you know far beyond hitting the ball. You know, hitting the ball happens to be the easy part of the game. You know, I mean, so 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 that's what uh, you know prompted uh, you know me to uh, write that book with uh, Max. You know, one hundred percent. Uh, behind, behind me, and Peter, and Mary, and uh, you know all the all the boys. You know, I mean, they were all behind me. Uh, you know, with the book because he said, "Look, it's time to prior to tournament up in '84." You know, the book was tennis books were basically dealing with uh, technique, and they were uh, 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 written for adults. You know, we were the very first book 
that was written for junior, competitive junior players, and that didn't talk about technique. You know, we were proud of doing that. We, it, was, it was by design. You know, we said it's time to, 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 to start, you know, to write a book that, that says what this game is about. You know, it's about the 50 minutes. This is about the 50 minutes, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, the, com- the competitive side of this game. And, and I will tell you about that, that my son now, you were mentioning, you know, is now a college coach. And, uh, and Josh was telling me, you know, basically, he said, you know, that, you know, the amazing thing is, is that in 83, 84, you and the boys, you know, decided to shock the world and, and write about the 15 minutes, basically, you know, the strategy, the, the thinking, the anticipation, all that happened when you're not hitting the ball. And uh, he was avant-garde at that point, and uh, he created a buzz because Mac was, you know, who Mac was, the number one in the world, and, 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 and people start talking about, you know, strategy and the thinking part and the competitive part. But he says, you know, the amazing thing is, is that lately, with all the technology and all of the, you know, the um, uh, uh, sports science and so forth, you know, the people just got so far back into the whole idea about how to stroke the ball again that, you know, we're back in the same cycle again that people are not looking at the 15 minutes anymore. They were just so tied into, into every angle that Djokovic hit that ball, how he lifts his left arm and this and that. Then we're not even talking about the competition, you know, yet. So, uh, I, you know, um, this old man right here is coming back right now and saying, okay, just like I did in 84, you know, here I am, uh, you know, 40 years later, trying to knock on people's, you know, head again and say, hey, you know, you guys, is, you know, he's, it's almost like that old thing, you know, the paralysis by over-analysis. You know, yeah. I mean, so come on. I mean, you know, come on. Let's just talk about what this game is about. This game is, you, you can start analyzing the stroke to the point where you become such a mental player that you cannot even hit a ball. And then you work so much on the stroke that, you know, you, you, you go out there, you know, in the first round and you freeze. You know, you can't hit a ball, you know, when you start forty or whatever. So, you know, this is the this is where I think that coaching, you know, is lacking uh, these days. Is back to where I was back in '84. It's lacking, you know, to, to teach the 15 minutes. And I think the other part that the coach that the coaching is lacking, particularly in the, in, in in junior development, is the integration of parents, because the parents are are you know the main supporting system uh, of the uh, junior player. Of course, the coach is the second. You know, uh, a, a, a part of the supporting system of the uh, of the developing junior, and the third part of that supporting system that people just don't even you know uh, think about it are actually the kids' friends. You know, uh, you 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 are old enough, like I am, to 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 know you know how many great talented players have we seen in the last fifty years that got lost by the time they were fourteen, fifteen, because of their their, their, their toxic, toxic friendship that they ended up, you know, having. I mean, you know, we know a, we, you know a bunch. I know a bunch. Yeah. You know, so, so, so balancing this uh, the the developing juniors uh, uh, support system, which includes the coach, the parents, and friends, it's critical for the uh, uh, developing junior to reach his or her tennis potential. It's critical, and that part. Is not being addressed. 
uh, in, in, in junior academies and junior programs. Granted, it's a difficult uh, job for one of those uh, of that uh, supporting system to coach. Why? Because our colleagues are basically hired by the parents. So basically, they're working for the parents, right, by, by coaching their kids. And it's a, it's, a, it's a touchy situation when you are a coach of Little Johnny, you know, and uh, you have the an idea that uh, that Johnny's parents, you know, are not understanding what their role should be. But you just have a difficult time crossing that line and going to your employer and saying, this is what you need to do. So that little Johnny can reach his, uh, you know, little Mary can reach the potential. Uh, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough job for that coach to do because he's also working, you know, with that junior. So um, this uh, um, uh, program that um, uh, that I am launching right now, it, it, it's tournaments up online right now. Instead of tournaments up, it's like online right now. I'm too old to be out there on the court, but uh, it basically is dealing with that. Guys, okay, it's just basically saying, okay, look, I'm a neutral guy here. You know, I'm not the coach of of, of your son or your daughter, and I basically can speak to you, you know, as a third party. That you know, this is how to be, you know, a tennis parent, uh, the role of a tennis parent to help eventually, you know, your kid, which is which is, to begin with is what every parent wants is to do the best they can for the kid. But you end up with the two different types of parents, right? You end up with a helicopter parent that we all know, you know, that, that basically is overwhelming and just screws up everything. Uh, most of the time, not intentionally, it's just because they just don't know, you know, what to do. Uh, there's no manual out there for them. There is only like, uh, you know, coaches are, oh, God, those parents are crazy. You know, like, wait, 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 you know, they are, you know, how can we, how can we help them? Because they want to help little Johnny and little Mary. So how can we help them? Well, you know, I don't think that we can help. Yes, we can. So that's where I'm coming in right now. And I think besides that, you know, I can speak, you know, with some 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 sort of authority because, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud in my coaching career, guys, is not what I've done in, 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 in you know, with uh, the things that you've been mentioning about my coaching career. It's really uh, my, my biggest pride. In, in, in my co- my tennis career is actually being a tennis parent, you know, for Jones. Um, you know, being able to go through that journey with him in my position at that point when he was growing up into writing into my camps with all of these, you know, top juniors in this country and from around the world. And, uh, and I was, you know, extremely concerned about, you know, him getting involved in tennis and feeling all these pressures, and I did not want that to interfere with the dynamics of my family uh, and our love for the family and the kids and so forth. I said, no, this tennis cannot interfere with my family, and I'm not going to let that happen. Um, seen too many times, you know, as a, as a junior coach. Now, everything that I was preaching, uh, in, in coaches' conferences, as you remember, I was probably speaking about coaching kids and you know, the USPTAs and USTAs, teachers' conferences and USPTRs was always about me coaching juniors. And uh, now i got to do it myself with my own kids. And so 
the way that I approached it, um, I am very proud to say that we came out of that journey, uh, you know, well. And, um, you know, here we are, you know, years and years later, you know, and, uh, you know, Josh and I are still, you know, best friends. And, uh, you know, get in the game never interfere negatively with uh, with our family dynamics or our father-son relationship. And I think that that's the most important, well, for me, it's the most proud part of my tennis uh, career as a player, as a junior player, as a, as a college player, as a, as a, as a coach. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, of professionals, et cetera. It was the way that 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 him and I handled his junior tennis uh, journey. And I take my head off to people like uh, Lisa, you know, Stone from Parenting Aces. Uh, I'm sure you're very much, uh, you know, well aware of uh, Lisa. You know, uh, I found out when Lisa was being a parent of Morgan, her son, her son was only like 12, 13 years old or something like that, starting to play tennis, junior tennis. And uh, I remember she contacted me to, to, to do an interview. I didn't even know what the word podcast meant back in those days. I didn't even know what a podcast was. I thought that, uh, you know, this lady, I guess, is writing for some kind of a, of, a, of a tennis newspaper or something and wants to interview and be fine. And, uh, and, and that's how the relationship started with Lisa. And I took my hat off to her because here was a tennis mother taking her son, you know, around in the tournament, realizing that she wanted to do the best she could for her, you know, for her son, and realizing that she did not know what what was what that was. And 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 what did she do? She started her own little you know service of all the challenging aces and started like to learn and and, and and interview coaches, you know, as a parent. And even today, after all these years, I mean, you know, Morgan has already grown up and gone through college, graduated from college. This doesn't have to be doing what she's doing. She's still there with parenting agents and still trying to help, you know, the parents um, to to navigate through, you know, the difficulties and the challenges that uh, that this journey brings to the, to the family dynamics. So I take my head off to her. I always tell her that because, uh, you know, that's what we need more. We need more Lisa uh, Lisa's, you know, in our game because the coaches as I told, as I said before, are in a very delicate situation to coach the parents, the coaches of the kids. And uh, people like Lisa can give the parents, you know, a, a pers- uh, the perspective from the parents that went through it as well. And I think that's where we are going to see a healthier uh, 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 human development, um, you know, in, in, in happening when you start actually coaching parents on what it is the proper role of the parent, you know, so that everybody can actually enjoy the journey and reach goals that are realistic, keeping the entire journey into perspective because the parents lose perspective so quickly. I mean, you know, little Johnny starts, uh, you know, taking a lesson, you know, and, oh, Johnny's playing tennis. Oh, yeah, twice a week. You know, he loved it. Oh, it's so wonderful to see him out on the court getting balls and so happy. You know, then little Johnny's out there playing the first tournament. Oh, how wonderful that is. And then little Johnny loses, like, love and love. He's like, death in the family. I mean, you know, for two, you know, for two weeks, nobody speaks to each other. You know, so so it gets to a point where coaching parents, keeping in perspective, and, and you know, if it's, it's a very, it is a very, very important facet of human development. It is not being addressed. And I'm, I'm ready to do it. 
<laughs> no, our, our parents, uh, or should, I should say our listeners, and many of them are parents, uh, should go to uh, your son's website, University of South Carolina, Men's Tennis. You read about Josh and his program. And also Lisa Stone, Parenting Aces. Um, but Tournament Tough, a book, a camp, now an online camp. It was a bestseller, 8384. I know we made it a mandatory assignment to read your book uh, in a course called Contemporary, Contemporary Literature and Tennis Instruction. But let me ask. Have, I remember that. Let me have Brandon ask a question. But then I want to get into a uh, question or two with the, the parent player workshop and your uh, connection with Bill Jacobson. Uh, but let's, oh, yeah. let's go. We have Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. Well, it's another, it's another, I think, important topic, and it has to do with parenting and just culture, uh, sports culture nowadays. But it's important to note that you mentioned McEnroe being a very active multi-sport athlete and yourself as well, uh, something I'm sure you, you could connect, connect with Mac on. Yeah. Um, and, and it's my understanding he was one of the best soccer players in the state of New York. Is that right? Well, he was a, as a kid, yeah, he yeah. Was, was, was a great little soccer player. We used to play quite a bit of soccer, and uh, you know, and, yeah, we had so many, so many. We had to, we we clicked on so many different, uh, you know, areas. I mean, like I said, I mean, we, we, his mental maturity, the way he looks at the at, at, at tennis, you know, about competing, in, you know, on tennis, tennis courts. And, and as I said, I mean, I had just, you know, a few years back, you know, had witnessed, uh, you know, the. Uh, 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 the wisdom of uh, of, of uh, Beppe Merlo, and I said, I can't believe uh, you know these people are coming into my to my life right now. I mean, Beppe, you know, just changed my head the way I was looking at the game up on you know up until I was nineteen. I couldn't believe that a guy like that could win. You know, because up until nineteen years old, I've been taught that you know until my serve is the best serve, and my forehand is the best forehand, my back is the best back, and then my ball is the best my return. You know, I'm not going to be you know, a good player. Mm-hmm. So I was just always working on my strokes. I mean, you know, and then all of a sudden I looked at a guy that just couldn't hit a ball in one in one matches. I said, how is that possible? So it was a revelation to me that then when I actually, you know, was across the net from Mac, as I told you in that first lesson, I, I saw the kind of the same kind of thing in Mac. I mean, Mac's not even thinking about what I've been thinking, what I've been taught all mm-hmm. my life, mm-hmm. you know, about all these drills and hit a million balls. I mean, like, why? If we don't do that in a match, why do we? Why do I want to practice and waste my time on a tennis court, you know, with something that we don't do in a match? And I'm going, well, that makes sense. Why didn't I figure that out? You know, why did it took me, took a 14, 15-year-old kid to tell me that, mm-hmm. you know, so... In your most recent in your most recent venture with uh, helping tennis parents, uh, is there any part of that in which I know nowadays it's it's early specialization kids playing tournaments and specializing in one sport and uh, starting that at a very young age. Uh, what's your stance on uh, raising children to be multi sport athletes? And is there any aspect of of your most recent venture where you're emphasizing that with with the parents at all? Well, listen, Brandon, it, it's very simple. You know, it's so simple. Okay? Uh, there are two main phases in junior development. Okay? Pre-adolescence and post-adolescence. Let's make it really simple here for everybody to understand this. You know, whatever you're doing at tennis court pre-adolescence, guess what? has nothing to do with what you're going to do in a tennis court post-adolescence. Nothing. Nothing to do. Let's be frank with each other here. Okay? Into everybody that is watching. So, uh, what does it take to win in the tens and twelves, and even fourteen? What does it take? It takes basically pushing the ball. 
because you can't cover the net, you can't serve well, you can't you can't cover the court. You know, it it feels like a twelve year old, you know, that is a great uh, uh, soccer goalie. You know, uh, but 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 he has to cover a, you know that goal that is like made, meant for a, a guy that is at least six foot tall. And so no matter how good of a of a, of a little goalie the twelve year old is, you know he can't cover that goal. It's the same thing out there, of course. Mm. So 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 let's make it very clear, okay? Um, parents uh, and coaches and our colleagues have to be very clear with the kids. Hey, listen, you know what you're doing here before you go through your adolescence, which means the hormones that start kicking in. The girls around thirteen, the boys around fourteen. Okay, what we're doing here is, number one, we have to learn, as Steve mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know, the basics, you know, the fundamentals of striking the ball, stroking the ball cleanly, um, you know, talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that, uh, you know, I even, uh, you know, I've heard a little bit of, a, of, a, of you know, the podcast that you, um, that you did with my own buddy, Chuck, you know, Chuck was talking about the, the wooden racket, you know, look, I mean, look at this. You know, today, my son bought one of those small little rackets. You know, I forgot the name of it right now. So it's a little training racket. And he's got his players, you know, playing with those little bitty rackets, mm. you know, right now. I mean, why? Because if you look at, uh, 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 you know, even the rockets, the, you know, the rocket labor. I know you guys have seen my my dear, dear friend, Parvin Urick. Uh, the ball, you know, the the wall movie, right? You've, you've seen part of the movie, The Wall, where, where he 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 made this movie uh, uh, as uh, his protest to the uh, French Federation when they knocked down the wall, you know, at Roland Garros, you know, to put the uh, the, the 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 center of the uh, of, of the French Tennis Federation there and not knock the, 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 those walls that every player used to just get against those walls, warming up for their match in those days. And Torben, you know, in the in that film, in, you know, decided to to interview everybody, you know, out there at um, Roland Garros, whatever year he, he he did that that movie. But one of the guys that he interviewed, I mean, the interview, mm-hmm. I'm talking about everybody: Rene Lacoste, Tom Budge, uh, Lando, Eddie Rock, Godfrey. I mean, we're talking about everybody. Torben. Uh, interview, but when he interviewed Rocket Labor, the Rocket said something that is so incredibly wise. You know, in the Rocket, every time he said something, you know, I, he just went into my to my brain, and then when and it became part of my DNA, and so many things that he had said, he said that I heard him saying either indirectly or to me directly through the years. That I will never forget, and I use that uh, use that those words from him of wisdom all of my coaching. But one thing he said to Torben when he was being interviewed uh, for that movie was that um, you know we used to go and hit against the wall all the time, and what we were doing, you know, hitting against the wall, we were working on our timing. I mean, whoa, whoa, are you kidding me? That's exactly what I did when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You know, that's exactly what all, all of us old timers that grew up in clubs had to do it because you know what? 
Comes five o'clock in the afternoon, the man had the court, the adult had the court, the kid never had the court. The way you went, where did you go? You went to the wall. You know, just the wall all the time. And what were you doing in a wall? Not only having good time, you know, playing little games, you know, with other buddies, or, you know, cross court games, you know, we used to play set against, you know, other guys on the wall because we didn't have courts to play. Well, every kid in my generation, the labor generation, prior to all that, is the beginning of the game. Went to the wall to learn how to hit the ball cleanly. Cleanly. That's what we did in the wall. You hit the ball in the sweet spot of a little mm-hmm. racket, and you just kept that ball on that racket, and you make sure that you hit that ball perfectly timed, perfectly, you know, perfectly in the middle of the racket. And the and Rocket basically says to Torben, when Torben is asking, you know, Rocket, what was your experience growing up on the wall? He says, I used to go all, all the time, and all we were doing was, you know, is timing, learning how to the timing and the beauty of the strings meeting the ball and producing the stroke at exactly the same spot, time and time again. When do the kids do this today when they're out there playing with another guy across the net? There's no timing involved anymore. With a big old racket right now, with these strings that they can just go out there and just, you know, as I call it, a, you know, windshield wiper shot that basically keeps the ball in the racket like, you know, you know, nothing. But the ball still kind of flies over the net. You know, it, 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 it's a complete sense. Of, you know, it, 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 it basically gives you a false sense of security the way that these kids are, you know, are hitting balls and practicing with these rackets. Because you know what? When you get tight on the mat, if you don't have the proper timing, and if you can't keep, you don't have a feel for the ball and keep that ball on your racket, you get a little extra tension on the on a four out thirty forty, and you're not going to make that shot happen. Go ahead, Brandon. It's great to listen to you, Carlos. <laughs> Love it. I'm good right now. Yeah. One thing uh, with the parent player workshop, I know you were a Nike rep. A Dunlop was involved. Uh, I know our students were fortunate. You hired, I don't know, maybe a dozen kids over the years from the program we had for tennis teachers. Sure did. But then, did. But then uh, your connection with Bill Jacobson, who's he's one of our pillars in the, you know, your concept, the green light, yellow light. Uh, I get it right, yellow. What do we have, green? It's red. <laughs> there you go. The three colors. Good thing I'm not, not driving so much in traffic anymore. But then yep. the, the teaching parents to chart. I can remember uh, one time Peter Peter Fleming was a speaker. You were a speaker. Uh, Jack Garoppolo yeah. was there, yeah. and there was so many players. It was in Dallas. It was at T Bar M, and I was with a group yeah. of, of student assistants. And um, initially, with uh, 1982 CT 120s, uh, Bill Jacobson, <laughs> I, I, he's a dear friend of yours. I spoke to him uh, not just a few weeks ago. He's 85 years old, and he. Oh. Such a class, classy oh. gentleman, soft-spoken. He said he wanted to shy away from uh, not being on the podcast, but having you speak oh. on his behalf is, uh, is, is would be a great honor. Um, tell us a little bit about the connection with Bill Jacobson and how that all happened. Well, it, first of all, it, 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 it still gives me goosebumps for you to you know mention the Bill to me because uh, because the Bill is one of those guys that. Um, Revolutionized the game, and very few people know. You know, I mean, uh, his 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 the way he re- revolutionized the game. Um, 
so so uh, so here I was in um, you know I think uh, we're talking about what um, you know late eighties yeah late eighties yeah mid mid to late eighties because of my association with Max obviously I was hired as the uh, uh, as the uh, the director of tennis promotions for Dunlop Flavinger. And then I was also hired, uh, you know, to be the uh, the junior tennis promotions for Nike, strictly because of my association with John. And uh, and and and, um, and it was amazing because uh, being in that position with a racket company and with uh, you know at that point, you know, with a shoe and clothing company, I would get all of these parents of kids calling me, sending me letters. I mean, you can you just imagine, I mean, the amount of letters that I got from junior parents telling me the set stories that, you know, they need the rackets and strings from Dunlop and then they need shoes and clothes, and clothes from, uh, from Nike. And there were some set stories that I always felt very, very much, uh, you know, uh, sympathized with and then tried to help as many people as I could in that position. But then, the other side was the horrible side about my being in that position of, with those two companies. I would hear from parents that were negotiating with me, you know, with their 12, 13 year old saying, you know, such and such company, I said, there's, was willing to give the X number of rackets. How many rackets are you willing to give me? You know, my kid, you know, and or such and such a company is giving me X number of uh, shoes and X number of shorts and, uh, and, 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 and warm-ups and all that. How many are you, going to give me, you know, and my answer to those, and I'm not going to even mention names here, but there were, you know, parents of people, of, of junior players that became great players, you know, in our game, and I will not mention names, but, but I had to deal with them, and, uh, and I, and that infuriated me, infuriated me to be in that position that I had a budget to give free lists, and how to choose free lists. And free lists, as you remember, were given, you know, to rankings, to the top rankings, with the idea that, you know, give this to the top kids so that if they do turn pro, you know, they have loyalty to us and they will continue to play with us and we can get them, you know, in a contract, you know, for, for a little less. Well, guess what? That, that was not the case. You know, there was no loyalty. It was obvious. And, uh, and a lot of the parents just wanted to basically uh, pitch uh, you, you know, one company against other company and get whatever company that gave them the most product. And I was not going to play that game. So I remember going up to, uh, uh, to uh, Ian. Ian Hamilton was the guy that was doing the marketing and dealing with the professional players and Nike. So he was dealing with uh, Monica Sellers, the Andre Agassiz, Mac and Rose, and all of the, you know, the stable pros. And I said, Ian, I'm not going to give product away at Dunlop. And I don't want to give product away anymore to Nike for juniors. We're going to give instruction, education, rather than product. And uh, he looked at me and says, are you crazy? And they go, I mean, nobody has ever done that. I mean, you've got to give them the product. No, we don't, because there's no loyalty. What is the point of being basically in competition with the other companies? I mean, they make no point. We're not doing any, any service to the kids, first of all, and no service to the game. Second of all, and I'm not into you know in this position for that. So uh, I put together what ended up, as you said, being called the tournament of player parent workshops, and we went to the USDA, 
and uh, and the pitch to the SDA and say, look, we've got uh, Dunlop, we've got Nike, uh, and we've got Ray-Ban. We, Ray-Ban, the fellow from Ray-Ban used to be very close to us in those days. So he came in and put up some uh, some product and some and some money, actually, you know, for us to, 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 to make this thing together. I put my budget from Dunlop and, and my budget from... Uh, from um, uh, 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 from Nike for junior free lists, and we decided, we ended up making a partnership with the USDA, and we held those workshops, as you remember, in all seventeen sections of the USDA. You know, uh, back in the day, so uh, it took us about I think a year and a half. Uh, you know, I don't remember exactly the, the, the time that it took for us to visit all seventeen, but. We, um, um, yeah, I contacted uh, Lair uh, in Grapple. Uh, Jim and, and, and uh, Jack basically said, uh, we're in. This is a great, great concept, great idea. You can count me in. Um, you know, uh, uh, so the three of us were basically, as you remember, the sort of the, the faculty of the Tournament Talk Workshops, which is uh, Jim, Jack, and myself. Each one of us talking, I was talking more about the strategy side of the game. Jim was talking more about the psychology of the, of the game. And then in Grappo, you know, designed the fitness test that became later the protocol for the USDA fitness test. You remember that when yeah. we went to the, um, the, the workshop? We had the uh, hexagon test and all of those things. But Jack designed it for our workshops, and then he became the protocol for the USDA. So we, we the, the, the workshop in those days were uh, really avant-garde. They were really, um, you know, a new, a new, a new approach to to everything. A new approach for the, the companies switching from free list to education, and the fact that we were bringing in the juniors from that section. All all kids that had a ranking in the section were invited to come in with their coaches and their parents, as you remember. And we would go, you know, the one that you attended in Dallas was at the TBIM. But, I mean, you know, we did that in Portland, for instance, you know, at the, uh, you know, where the lasers, you know, play in Portland. Uh, we did uh, things in resorts. We did, uh, we did these uh, workshops in, in, in gymnasiums of, uh, you know, arenas of, of uh, professional sports, uh, clubs, uh, uh, you know, uh, city parks. We did it at basically in all 17 sections in every place you could possibly imagine. And the format, as you remember, is that we utilized our professionals, you know, that were under contract. Each one of these pros under contract had to make, you know, X number of appearances uh, for the company. And this whole thing started basically because, um, you know, uh, and the reason why I ended up getting these jobs is because uh, uh, both companies were having a hard time on uh, utilizing Mac uh, days, uh, you know, as per contract. Because the way that um, companies were, were utilizing those players in those days, you remember well, was to bring them for a cocktail party, you know, with uh, somebody that owns a pro shop that bought more products. And that's the last thing Matt wanted to do is to have a cocktail, go to a cocktail party to, to schmooze with people that, you know, were good customers of the company. I mean, he wouldn't go. And so, you know, I was approached by, you know, by, by both companies and says, look, you know, how can we utilize Mac. I mean, you know, was uh, today's with us. 
I said, well, certainly not by, you know, making him feel uncomfortable and putting him in these uncomfortable positions for him. And, well, but what would be comfortable? I said, well, Maxine's a junior. You know, he wants to help juniors. He's, uh, you know, look what we did with the book. I mean, he's into juniors. And, uh, well, what can we do? I said, well, let me think about it. That's how, you know, and then Mac was super supportive, and he came to so many, you know, of those tournament top player parents workshops, and he was so busy in those days. I mean, he's still... But he he showed up and and uh, he would talk to the to the to, to the parents and the kids and the coaches play an exhibition you know one set against somebody else that so we would bring a Gullickson or we would bring Jonathan Sparks that I remember or we brought so many players you know to those to those workshops we would play an exhibition go through the workshop there was a two day workshop we would go through the workshop and then the, the next day would you know it would be the exhibition of the pros and then. We would pick, you know, uh, two kids to play actually uh, doubles and, and hit uh, you know, a few games with uh, with our pros. It was an incredible um, um, uh, event, if you will, that um, that we did, and we were all proud of uh, of doing that back then. I think we helped quite a bit, uh, you know, those parents that that wanted to learn more about their roles, and um, and, and we were able to do that. And one of the things that I was extremely uh, uh, into it was Bill Jacobson's computers because he was just starting out of the gates, you know, out of Stanford in those days with computers. And people just didn't know what statistics were all about back in those days. You remember that. I mean, you know, yeah. there were no statistics. And, uh, and I said, I can't believe that there's a guy that is, you know, from Stanford that is actually, you know, charting a match. You know, and coming up with, uh, you know, this, you know, I uh, mean, the percentage of reserves that we can learn more about, you know, what, what is the ideal percentages of uh, reserves then, a point one second serve. But then when I learned what Bill Jacobson, Jacobson invented, which was called the aggressive margin, that did it for me. I said, that's it. That is the biggest thing I've ever heard in tennis in my life. That is the key right there for developing junior. Here's this aggressive margin. And it's so misunderstood. And I said, uh, he's got to be involved. So I called Bill and I said, uh, look, you know, I, I hadn't had him before. I said, I need for you to be part of this uh, workshops. And uh, and he did. And we, we, you know, either him or Steve, you remember, Abramson, you know, traveled yeah. with us into all 17 uh, sections. And that they were an integral part of my uh, of my workshop. And while we are in this subject, I want to try to tell the listeners here that today, you know, back to that uh, paralysis by over analysis that we talked about earlier. Today, the statistics that we hear, you know, on TV uh, during a match these days, um, in my opinion. Yeah, they're interesting, but we're talking about, you know, a barrage of data that is irrelevant for a developing junior. Bill Jacobson, you know, kept it simple, you know, so good old kid, you know, keep it simple, stupid, okay? His simplicity was all it takes for junior is to know the service, third performance, first and second, so that you can keep tuning that third. And the aggressive margin, because 
the concept of rent and margin that he came up with, as you know well, but a lot of people don't know, particularly these days, is the concept is a formula that that no player has um, uh, lost a set with a higher aggressive margin than the opponent. I mean, that is ingenious. If you can come up with numbers that say if you if your aggressive margin is higher than your opponent's, guess what? You won't lose the set. Come on, come on. Are you kidding me? You know, so that gave me a, a, a new view of the of my coaching that I said that was just the, all the fifty minutes, all about competition. That was my 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 philosophy, my methodology. It was like fifty minutes is the strategy. What is what are you doing in those 15 minutes that you're not hitting the ball? And then I, you know, and I never want to talk about, you know, technique that you, the way when you're hitting the 10 minutes, but, but then, you know, learning about Bill Jacobson's aggressive margin, I said, that's a way that you can also control and manage your game during those 10 minutes. I said, I like that. We're not talking about forehands and backhands. We're talking about, you know, how many winners you hit in that set. How many forcing shots do you hit in that set that cause error against your enforced errors? Well, that's the aggressive margin. is the sum of your winners plus your forcing. Therefore, the points that you win with your weapons against the, the points that you give away with your enforced errors. And guess what? If that aggressive margin is higher than the opponent, you, you cannot lose. It's mathematically proven in the game that you cannot lose. And that became, you know, my second tenet of my, my methodology. And as you know, I've charted max matches. And then when I started coaching Patrick, you know, in 89, and I was out there on the tour with Patrick for two years, we I charted every single practice set that Patrick played and every match. That Patrick played, you know, on the tour. I mean, we would go back to, we would go to dinner, you know, after the matches. And during dinner, you know, I was basically, you know, him and I were looking at my chart, my paper chart. You know, I, sometimes I used to go with the with the CT20 with a with a with a computer, but I got to a point where I actually, you know, ended up with just a, a clipboard and. Uh, and a serving sheet and a receiving sheet, and, and, and right there, boom, 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 I developed my own sort of a, a, a verbiage that in each one of those little boxes, I could just uh, put the score, put what kind of shot happened, and uh, and then we would study, I mean, you know, this, to the T, and, and learn so much about performance of uh, during that match, you know, from the black and white. That was ridiculous, and we were able to, to fine-tune you know, games, not only of juniors, but of professionals. Like, you know, Patrick, for instance, you know, learned from that um, aggressive margin and from the, from that charting that, uh, you know, his uh, backing approach, which was his strength, basically was not working because, you know, he was basically going for too much on his backing approach. And he was even, he was coming up with even, even X number of winners, you know, and, uh, you know, X number of important errors, but very, very, very little. You know, he was winning with that second approach by forcing the opponent, which is what an approach shot should be, right? And uh, so he was able to realize 
that he needed to be making that particular part of his game more of a forcing part of the tournament rather than going for winners or giving away uh, uh, unforced errors. So Bill Jacobson is a genius for coming up with that because that, to me, is what is missing today with the statistics that we see out there today. Why? Granted, forcing shots is a subjective call by the charter, but it is based on solid, solid principles. What is a what is a forcing shot? It's a shot that takes the opponent off balance. So even if he doesn't cause an error, you know, you end up with an open court in an easy put away. So most of the winners are predicated by a good forcing shot. Okay? And that's not charted. In all of the apps that you have today, in all of the statistics that you watch, not you know, on the you know, tennis channel and the matches today, they don't even talk about the forcing shot. It's either he had so many winners and he made so many unforced errors. But for a developing junior that cannot understand, you know, and does not learn how to force errors, that developing junior is never going to be a player. We have a podcast dedicated to to Bill and the language. The ball's hit three ways, plus, minus, IP, strong, weak, neutral. And then point ends three ways, plus, plus, minus, minus, yep. minus, F. And you're right. right there's there People are charting the winners and losers, and they're not charting the forcing shots. Also, too, all the discussion on RPMs um, versus just how many net appearances. I mean, there's a lot of lost arts. People are not hitting... You know, you go to junior tournament for three days and you may not see an overhead, you may not see a volley, a conventional approach volley, an approach shot. Um, let me digress just a little bit. I think that's fantastic for our listeners. Uh, you and I talked about this the other day that people really, to know the subject, they need to know their history. Also, too, is with credit. I know that uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy and Warren Pretorius, they're making a, a healthy, positive impact on the game with analytics. But uh, is it? Charming and as easygoing as uh, Bill Jacobson is, uh, um, I know he appreciated the other day when I said, you know, not enough people know that, uh, yeah. you know, he's really the godfather of electronic charting. No um, question. I was uh, sponsored by Nike, Ian Hamilton, and mm -hmm. um, we need to talk about this. Uh, Dave Anderson, um, when you went to uh, – Play the indoors in Dallas. He's been he's been there for twenty, I'd say twenty five years now. So but that was you know obviously after uh, years after you played there in the juniors. But he shared with us uh, the theme Back to the Future. And when you think yeah, of Blair yeah. and Grapple and, and, and Jacobson yourself, we were so yeah. fortunate back in the eighties, and that, that's basically the pathway the curriculum we, curriculum we have is based on the information, insights, and ideas from people like yourself. But that's a story I didn't know, you know, even though I was right there and uh, all these different things with Tournament Tough, that that you're, uh, the thing about product versus uh, education. And education, yeah, yeah. those are the three ways to improve tennis in America, education, education, education. No so, question about it. So my, so my son, Brandon knows my son Connor quite well, and like your son, he became... A, a good tennis player. He's an All-American, da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, he spent time being coached by Dave Anderson. And he said, Dad, uh, you know, why are, are you not sponsored? I said, I've been sponsored for years and years, but I'm not sponsored now because I will go to a place and do a weekend workshop and come back with, you know, a few thousand dollars, and that's how I pay for the orthodontist and the tutor and, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. going to Europe or wherever. So 
Uh, but he wanted, he got to the age where he wanted to be sponsored. And I said, well, I'm not going to help you with that. Uh, it's all based on your ranking. So next thing I know, he's called some people up and I see Brandon smiling now and he's, he's got all his beautiful, beautiful K-Swiss gear. I mean, he looks uh -huh. first class. He just loves K-Swiss, but he had, he only had to be top 20 in the country to be with K-Swiss, but he had to be top 10 in the mm -hmm. country to be with Adidas. So the next thing I know is, you know, a few months go by and he's gone from wearing all this classy K-Swiss stuff to wearing Adidas. But the, the Adidas shoes were a little bit narrow and his feet were killing him. And I remember just saying, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You, you were not loyal to K-Swiss. I mean, you should, they, they were nice enough to give you stuff and you, you should have just yeah. been, been happy with that. But you, you dropped K-Swiss and went with Adidas. Um, yeah. With... Uh, the aggressive error margin, if you go to the net um, and you win two out of three, consecutively, we tell juniors all the time, you win 6 0 6 -0. And mm -hmm. two out of three, we always pound it in. So you just are managed by tennis math, you know, managed by stats versus score. So two out of three, four out of six, eight out of 12, 16 out of 24. But that's a myth all the way to the top. Um, I went to watch Austin Krychek play just yesterday, somebody I've known since he was seven. And he's coached by Philip Farmer now. And Philip mm -hmm. Farmer, um, I've already told the story, I'm sure, on a podcast. So he's, it's in the 14s, it's finals of consolation. And I'm working with a young Timmy Hurst, who was good enough to end up, he ended up playing at SMU. I'm trying to explain to Timmy and his father, I said, you know, you, you, you won that match, but, you know, Philip dictated. He hit volleys and he hit overheads. And so that's where we say winning is not confusing. It's totally confusing. And, you know, we always say, with, and it all comes from Bill Jacobson, if you're going to miss, Try to miss in a point in any situation. You know, mm -hmm. to try, try to force. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, no, you, but you see, it's so simple. Uh, you know, it, it, it really is so simple. The aggressive margin is a brilliant concept because, look, let's go back to that question that uh, Brendan, I think, asked earlier about what's the difference in, in you know, in, in, in developing a junior junior player, and I said there are two distinct you know, main phases, pre-adolescent and post-adolescent. Well, look at what happens. The kids that are uh, successful in the 10s and 12s, and in a large part still in the 14s, are the kids that are not using, are not developing their weapons. So their numbers in a set go like this. In one set. Okay, so let's just for the listeners that don't understand this, is that, you know, in, a, in an average set, we play between 50 and 60 points, right? So, you know, a tiebreaker, you know, set, you can play 80 to up, sometimes 100 points, you know, in a, in a tiebreaker set. So, so an average set, 6-3, that have a couple of deuces, a few deuces, you're playing, you know, 55, 60 points. Now, uh, uh, the numbers then, you know, for a 10 and 12-year-old, uh, that is, uh, top player in 12-year-olds are like this. It's like uh, one set. They will hit maybe three, four winners. They will force maybe, you know, three, you know, or four uh, uh, shots. And uh, they will give away like maybe, you know, three or five uh, or, you know, or close to 10 um, unforced errors. This is the best 12-year-olds. So if you add the three winners, three forcing, that six points that you won with your weapon, then you gave away 10. So your weapon margin is minus four, okay, at this point, okay? And you are 
a top player because the other player that you beat, basically their numbers were, uh, you know, four winners, two or three um, uh, forcing. But instead of making eight or ten on Porteros, you know, kids 10, 12 years old, they'll make 20, 25 on Porteros. So their aggressive margin on the other side of the net, instead of being sort of a, you know, the winner was like, what, negative four, you know, the other guy was negative 20, okay, on the other side. So so I call that negative tennis when your aggressive margin, when when the, the total of your winners plus forcing is less than the number of your enforced tennis is negative tennis. And then, of course, there is positive tennis. That is when, you know, your number of winners and your forcing is bigger than the number of enforced errors that you give away. And then what I call the championship tennis is when you win double of the points with your weapon than you give away with your enforced errors. Okay? When you look at the, the top players, if I was to chart the very top players, you know, they all are playing championship tennis. They all are, you know, they all are winning double of the points with their weapons than, than they give away with their enforced errors. But in the 10s and 12, you know, there is, it, 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 people, the kids don't win. They lose less, what I call it. They lose less. So what, is, what, what winning means in 10s and 12s means that you can, you, if you go for too much, your number of enforced errors are going to grow, and your negative tennis is going to be the worse than the player across the net. Therefore, you know, you're going to lose more because the other guy did not win either because he also played negative tennis. So once you get that concept that started with uh, Bill Jacobson, you learn what winning in tennis means, what losing in tennis means. Because when do you lose in tennis? Is when you play negative tennis. When do you uh, win in tennis? Is when both players are playing positive tennis or championship tennis, and guess what? You know, yours was better than the guy across the net. But both players played winning tennis. But they both players played positive or championship tennis. So once you understand that, you know, a parent needs to understand that, you know, and a lot of coaches need to understand that, because then it changes the whole approach about the 10, 12s, and the 14s, doesn't it? Because you say, wait a minute now, to make this kid you know, successful, I'm, I'm holding this kid from developing weapons that he's going to need in the 16s and 18s and college and beyond. I'm holding him back you know, because he can't really go for shots because he's, he's going to have to make less unforced errors in order to lose less. That is Bill Jacobson's teaching to me. Jacobson, I think people have to make a study. There's so much information. I do think people will just take a soundbite and something I really tire. I just get so frustrated hearing serve plus one, serve plus one. So what's happening now in really the formative years, you know, as early as 10 and 10 and unders, you know, definitely 12 and unders, is kids are tossing the ball way over their head. They're arcing, arching, arching their back, arcing the serve in. And, you know, they're just hitting an IP at best because the mechanics aren't there. And then they have, like, the late Bud Collins, they don't, they don't have a Western grip, they have an Hawaiian grip. And the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the butt of the racket's almost hitting their earlobe. And they've heard serve plus one, so there's just, there's no such thing as a conventional approach volley, and even just a volley. And the kids aren't even sometimes warming up at the net. 
And it's a, it's, you know, it's a crisis. I mean, who's going to stop the bleeding? You know, that's where, again, that concept of, uh, come back to the future with, yep. uh, but serve plus one, I know, okay, we understand. Okay. The uh, first strike tennis, you know, the first mm-hmm. four shots, but, but, you know, you take a, a, a young kid who's 10, 11 years old, say, okay, we're going to just hit, see if we can hit 200 balls up the middle. And yeah. you still have to have that type of training. And I know a, a Craig O'Shaughnessy and a Warren Pretorius, they know that. But I do think that what happens with, uh, you know, a short YouTube clip or uh, something on the tennis channel, they're just, it's just, the, the thinking's too shallow. People just don't go into enough depth to really understand. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, well, yeah. Carlos, I mean, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, 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 I am, you know, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of, uh, of educating parents not only about what winning and losing in tennis means, you know, so we just talked about it, you know, and also preparing the parents to understand that free as a lesson, you know, it's one type of tennis, and that's what, you know, should be happening during free as a lesson, you know, and uh, the kid needs, uh, you know, to learn, uh, uh, you know, how to, uh, uh, how to develop a game without any glaring weakness. So you need the fundamentals so that uh, you don't have a weakness, you know, and that's when you develop your stroke, your clean strokes, and your, 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 and your technique fundamentals. It is in a 10 minute 12, you know, but, uh, but, uh, um, uh, but you've got to have a, a versatile game. You've got to learn a versatile game. You've got to learn, you know, how to slice the ball. You're going to have to learn how to approach. You're going to learn how to hit that first volley. You're going to learn people, to, people are scared to go to the net today because of, you know, the, the, the speed of the ball, you know, and, 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 and when they do go to the net, you know, nobody, nobody, very few kids that I watch, you know, uh, even know what a second and third effort means, you know, when you're in the net. Whereas when we went to the net, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, serving volley and went to the net as the first opportunity we had. Uh, you know, that's how I grew up playing tennis. You know, I mean, we would, we would, we would jump on the back and slice the ball hit like three feet inside the baseline. We were in, we were in, we were just on top of the ball and in. You know, I mean, with that. But but but, but okay. So what happens is, is that when we got to the net. We just didn't expect like an easy little volley so we could put it away. And that's what players today do. They go to the net and they expect to have a ball that is an easy volley put away. You know, no, you're going to have to get that first volley when you get there. And not only that, you're going to have to dive for two more, two more efforts after that. And there is no concept anymore about the second and third effort at the net. They look at McEnroe. You know, I mean, Mac used to dive from... You know, come in, first volley, second volley, third volley. I mean, you know, he would be right in there on top of the net, you know, all over the place. So that needs to change. Okay. So let's talk about the equipment because a lot of people out there say, yeah, but, you know, this old man is talking about it when he was playing with, like, the racket. Okay. This old man is not that sick. Okay. I still have some knowledge, you know, here. Okay. What did the technology do to the game? We're old-timers. We played with wooden rackets. We were we, people like you and me. We're very, very um, uh, fortunate because we, were, we 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 saw the transition. A lot of people today that are playing tennis, they 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 did not experience the transition like we did. So therefore, we are, in my opinion, more you know educated to speak about the change in technology of our game. In my opinion, the technology changed two departments of the game. The technology, meaning the rackets, you know, uh, uh, from a wooden racket 
to, you know, small weighty, you know, square inch wooden racket, Dunlop Max Fly and, and Wilson Jack Kramer, you know, basically in those days, and Don A, uh, you know, then for, you know, something graphite and composites, as you, as you remember, they first came, you know, first the aluminum rackets, as you remember, and then, you know, they went to the graphite with uh, some little zoom up there in, in, in Taiwan, that was uh, making everything great, like you know, bicycles and and, 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 and golf clubs and and uh, everything graphite, and he made rackets graphite for every company, you know. And I was right there with Dunlop in those days, if you remember. So, what did the graphite racket with a bigger head do? Okay, the stiffness of the graphite returned the energy of the ball, that the incoming ball. The wood racket absorbed the energy of an incoming ball. So, so basically, with a wooden racket, when, when a ball came at you at 130 miles an hour, it, for you to return that ball at 130 miles an hour, you couldn't just basically swing at it because the, 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 the sweet spot was the size of a ping pong. A ball that's coming at 130, it was, it was difficult to time, you know, right there, unless you were a labor, as you know, talking about timing. You know, to time that ball perfectly and make that contact on the sweet spot of a little next by the lot was a tough assignment. So we had to chip to slice it, to block it. That's the reason why it was easy to serve and volley, because you served at 130. And you and, and I guess a couple of people are saying, what, with a wooden racket? Yes, sir. Uh, my friend Colin Dibley, 1970. And Forrest Fields, by the way, served with a max size on lock at 150 miles an hour. With a max size on lock. Why? Because the, the, the racket technology did not affect the serve. Why? Because the serve, we were in control. The only, game, the only shot in the game that we were in complete control of. We were tossing the ball and we're swinging the racket to meet with the ball. And, you know, it's right there. So, I mean, how can you miss the sweet spot? And the most important part is not only you can make the sweet spot, you know, all the time with a wooden racket, even though it's a small little sweet spot when you're serving, but the ball weighed zero, had no energy. When you actually struck that ball, that ball was like a feather. Therefore, the racket didn't bend. The racket did not absorb the power and deflect your shot in the serve. So so the serve is not changed from wooden to the big graphite and big racket. In fact, I think that serving with big rackets is actually worse than serving with little rackets. There's more drag, in my opinion. But in any case, what then changed in the game? Returns and passing shots, right? That's the two, the two shots that changed. Uh, with a with a with a graphite racket, because now when you're returning a serve at 130 miles an hour with a with a big racket, you basically just swing that racket. You know, with your return, you can't miss the sweet spot because it's the size of a watermelon, and uh, and, and and that racket's not going to bend. It's not going to absorb the the the, the shot the, the the energy of that ball. In fact, it's going to return it even faster. So. So basically, the the the, techno- the racket technology changed the return because if you served into the player's hitting zone, guess what? He just swung that racket into that into that into that into that return, and before he got to the net, he got passed. And the same thing happened with the approach. You come in with a flat 
bomb approach into the guy's back, and the guy goes out there with a racket and just makes you swing the racket, he needs the sweet spot, and the ball comes back faster, you know, than your approach. But let's just think about it right now. What if then you serve and take away the 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 the, the technology? You know, by serving a serve into the body, not a flat bond down the key, you know, right there in the hitting zone of the opponent that he can return the power of your serve. What if you serve straight into the to, to the guy's body? That takes the, the technology straight out of the, the benefit of the technology straight out of that return because he's going to have to defend it, and then you have a volley instead of being being bombed or with a missile of a return. What if you come into the net with a nice slice approach, a nice slice approach that sticks, like one of those real sticking approach that we used to have back then, instead of these floaters that these kids these days, you know, they don't even know how to stick a volley or stick a, a, an approach, a slice approach. I mean, uh, the approaches back then, you remember, just to dig, you know, uh, all the clay court. You know, so much stick was into that into that approach. Well, if I come in with a with a with a with a slice back in, or a or a forehand slice, by the way, for those that, that think that I am talking, you know, uh, language from Mars, yes, we used to come in with slices, forehand slices as well. Yes, if we do that right now, what happens? That neutralizes the passing shot, the technology, you know, of returning the uh, power of an approach because I'm making that opponent now stick to make a passing shot with a ball that is not coming up from the court more than an inch. So he's not going to be able to return my power because my shot is not coming up an inch from the from the court surface and doesn't have a power for him to return. And then I'll have a easier volley. So, so why people are not doing that, you know, is because, you know, we went into the whole cycle of kids learning that uh, they were going to get burned in the net. Of course, they're going to get burned. They're coming in with the wrong shot. No, it's like with the green light point, we always say, gee, could you imagine if a, someone's 12 and under, if they knew, okay, I'm up 40 love, I'm going to hit a body serve because, you know, again, from Jacobson, angle begets an angle, just go straight, straight ahead, and the ball is going to come back. And then you're developing instincts, but kids will go, I mean, it's, you say they go one year without serving volume one time. Actually, it's more like three, four years, but they don't even serve and volley. I think that is yeah, one, no. that is one, that is one negative of the UTR where kids don't want to experiment. You know, I mean, obviously you played a lifetime of tennis, you know, you played matches where you just knew you're going to win the match and you, and you had three sets. That's another thing too, with a 10 point tiebreaker. I think more and more about what Chick Creasy said. One of his friends, I should be able to just tell you his name, where I think he called the icebreaker, that the first set, if you're going to do that, the first set should be a 10-point tiebreaker. So then you have a true third set. And you mm -hmm. don't, don't have it be a flip of a coin. But where, where did you come yeah. up with the, the green light concept, green? Well, yeah, that's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, and that, that's the day, you know, the academy again. You know, realizing that, uh, that, 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 that coaching needed to move into the whole strategy and, and tactics that nobody was talking about strategy and tactics. Everybody was talking about forehands and backhands. And certain, you know, I mean, what about the strategy and the tactics? Or, or how does a McEnroe, you know, uh, play in those 50 minutes that he's not hitting the ball, you know? And I knew Matt had because, you know, I've been so close to Matt, you know, 
I knew exactly what he was thinking, you know, uh, 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 during those 50 minutes all the time, you know, uh, and, and the way his mind operated in those 50 minutes. And, and, and I said, how can I possibly, you know, get that across to other kids that don't have the material, the competitive material that Mac has, and the ability to utilize those 50 minutes like, a, you know, like a genius, like a computer that he had, you know, in his head. And he's a brilliant kid, brilliant guy. He was a brilliant kid, and he's a brilliant guy. Uh, you know, extremely smart and extremely agile, mentally agile. Tremendous agility, in, you know, in his brain. So how can I pass that to other kids that don't have that brain agility that Mac has? And uh, and I remember from my days, I ended up uh, actually graduating with a degree in psychology. And uh, and uh, remember one thing, you know, well, a few things, but one thing that I remember from from my psychology uh, courses in college was that uh, kids, you know, learned best, you know, by uh, making, by analogy. Yeah, I remember, you know, this professor used to say, you know, if you didn't you know, like a child psychology course, you know, if you're going to try to teach kids, you know, you, you can, if you try to rationalize and try to explain, you know, the whole, the whole thing for kids, you lose the kids, you know, you just make an analogy and that kid will never, you know, you'll get the point. And because he makes an out, he can remember that. I said, aha, that's you know, what I have to do to try to figure out how to make these kids think immediately when uh, that point is over or what they're going to do next. What are they going to do? How are they, they going to play the next point? You know, you got 25 seconds, you know, in here and where Mac was utilizing every second of those 25 seconds, you know, the average kid was, you know, utilizing zero. You know, seconds of those twenty-five seconds. You know, always not prepared to play the next point. So I said, God, ah, that's the idea. You know, I've got to come up with a with an analogy that immediately a kid, when the point is over, he can basically, you know, what the, the kid can just say, ah, it's uh, you know, I'm going to play a green point now. You know, you know, I'm going to play a yellow point right now. We're going to play a red point right now. So what I did basically, I divided the game in 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 in, in half. You know, from thirty all. You know. So the front half from zero zero up to thirty all, I call it the yellow light, the yellow point, and uh, that's like basically you know you're trying to get ahead, you're trying to you know to to establish yourself in the game right there. It's a cautionary kind of a time you know in the game, but you know it's prior to thirty all, and then beyond thirty all, the second half of the game, the bottom half of the game, I call it the red light, the red light, the red point right there, and then you know I call the you know when you are up by two points or more, thirty all, forty all, or forty five, I call them the green point. I said, you know, look, you know, here you've got a, uh, you know, you, 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 you've got a situation where you are um, uh, ahead by two or three points. You know, it's time for you now to to hit the winner and the last shot of the point. You could be a winner or it could be an enforced because even if it's an enforced on a green situation, you know, you still have one or two more points to be able to to win the to win the game. When the, the strategy. You know, in the yellow uh, points, which is the front half of the game, prior to 30, always forcing, forcing, always playing the next to the last shot, never playing the last shot of the point. You just play the next to the left, next to the left, next to the left. And then when you get to the red situation, you're going to play the same forcing, because as you know, I'm really big into forcing shots. You know, little Bill Jacobson again. I'm big on forcing shots. That's how you develop a player. You develop a player that is aggressive. This is a game of aggression. We play a game of aggression. And and it's all about forcing uh, the other player off balance. When you get into the red light situation, the red point, 
you do force it in, but you add some more margin for error, you know, which is basically, you know, more spin and, uh, you know, height over the net and bigger targets, like repeating side of the lines. You don't, you don't go painting the lines when you're in a red situation. Because as we all know, you know, a mistake there, a bad tactic, a bad strategy, you know, in a red situation can cost the whole game right there. So it is the most important area of uh, of the game is the red coin. And, and great players, they're great red ball players. They know how to play the red. You know, they know so well how to play the red that I always, often, you know, in my coaching, I used to say to to, to the kids, I said, uh, you know, how many times, you know, uh, 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 have you heard players, you know, after they play a match, you ask, you know, how do you do? Oh, I did pretty well. You know, so, so really, yeah. Well, look, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it was a really tight, you know, tight match. I mean, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a really tight match. All the all the games like went up to deuce, really. Oh, really? What was the score? One and one. <laughs> Wait a minute. The, the the match was not even close. You know, you're telling me the match was closed? No, you basically got closed with the opponent into the red zone, you know, in a red point. But that guy knew how to play the reds, and you just basically gave the games away on the red. So you know, it was, the match was not closed because he got to the to to the produces every game, you know. But you got to learn how to play those. Now, oh, it's, it's a so... very interesting part of this analogy is with the green point that I said, uh, you know, you you go for the last shot of the point because you can afford it. But it also works when you're down by two points or more as well. Because if the opponent has a green point, meaning that he's up by two points or more, you know what he's coming up with. And you better step up, you know, and you better come up, you know, with a with a winner yourself, or you know what's coming. So, so when you do make that kind of paint that picture and that analogy for the kids, it was beautiful because the kids now could be out there at three o'clock in the afternoon in the hot Florida sun in July playing a, a, a three set match, you know, and it's a two three in the third man, you know, and you just you're exhausted. You could not even thinking straight at that point, uh, you know. And it's fifteen thirty, you know, and and, and 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 instead of getting desperate and going for a bomb and missing it at fifteen thirty because it's a yellow light, you, you chose to go for a, a winner because of desperation, you know, at that point of the match, it could cost you the whole match because now all of a sudden you missed that. You went you played a green instead of a yellow at the fifteen thirty. You're down five forty. The opponent takes a you know a chance, breaks you, and he runs with a match because he made that one mistake by not you know, playing the right light, the right point at that fifteen thirty to play the green instead of a yellow right there. So obviously, this this analogy just breaks down the so many different pressures that we go through in a match. You do only three general pressures, and you've got to take into consideration also. You know the score in the in the games and the score in the set. So you know if you won the first set six two, and you up uh, you know say you know say four one in the second, and uh, and it is fifteen all. Yeah, you can just almost go out there and play like a game because you know, you won the first set, you up four one right there. You're cruising at that point. But conversely, if you lost the first set and you're down like two three, and it's like fifteen thirty, you better play it as yellow because if you don't. You know, you'll cost you the whole match right there. So that's how, you know, that, that, uh, the, the traffic light, um, uh, system came about. Go ahead, Brandon. First of all, it's so refreshing to hear you that this is just a language that, 
um, between yourself and uh, Bill Jacobson, I was telling a young kid today, red zone to red zone, your shot tolerance. I said, you just mm-hmm. dropped two sets. What's the shot tolerance of your opponent? Now, I've coached the boy he's playing against for five years. And I would say his shot tolerance is three. He's going to make three balls. But the mm-hmm. maybe four. But the guy that we're mm-hmm. uh, helping out, who's been coached by one of our former students for years and years, and hits the ball really well. But mm-hmm. just make the discovery you're playing somebody just that Borg mentality of, you know, they can only hit, yeah. find out they can only hit three or four balls, rally with them a little bit. But, but go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I love what you, had, what you had to say earlier about the backboards, but also um, the volleys. I think uh, from what I've seen and just observing other programs and, and of course, watching other players uh, about the volleys with the second and third effort on the volley, um, and, and, of course, the racket technology, the string technology, but... I feel like kids only really now in their development, they're only learning how to volley off of, out of a basket feed. And so their, vo- exactly. their, their volleys are conditioned to basically be returning a, a, their coach's kind of continental grip, you know, 40 mile per hour forehand. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's just actually a totally different skill than, than if they're playing that same shot and someone's ripping a topspin forehand with a Western grip, you know, it, you know, 60, 70, depending on the, the age of the player, 60, 70, maybe even 80 miles per hour. And so um, it's just yeah, it's just unfortunate that uh, that part of the game, and you, you, you still see some players, of course, come forward, but it's just unfortunate that part of the game is not being developed um, at a younger age. But I've got to keep coming back to part of that has to be the, the lack of multi-sport athletes, you know. Um, yeah, as, you, as you described, the pre-adolescent versus post-adolescent yeah. uh period of their development um you know because like, like you said i mean they're not going to come to the net when they're you know nine years old it just doesn't make mm. a physical sense um exactly. but uh i i'm really really uh it, it's amazing listening to you talk I, I think uh i'm really interested again in the the parenting aspect um it's quite interesting to me that uh both johnny mac's father and your father were were attorneys and uh, were both very vocal about the fact that they wanted their sons to become attorneys. Um, what's your experience like with parents who maybe want their kids to become tennis players more than even the kids want to become tennis players? Well, those parents need to have a wake up call, you know, really quick. You know, that's, uh, you know, our game, you, you're not, when you're playing junior tennis, you should not even think about professional tennis. You know, that's, that's not, not only my opinion, that's, that's my philosophy. Mm. You know, you play junior tennis with one goal, uh, to basically, um, uh, learn to be the best player you can be in that journey. And that journey sometimes is a 10 year journey. I mean, you know, it's a seven to 10 year journey. It's a long journey, you know, that you get involved and you gotta have perspective because otherwise you get lost so quickly in that, that journey. And so many do. And that's the reason why I've got uh, PTO right now. So I'm in top online. I want to go back and say, look, it's a long journey. We've got to put this thing in perspective, know exactly what the phases are and what you need to do, you know, in those, you know, during those phases so that you can ultimately reach the goal of every junior player should be to play college tennis in the college of your choice. That should be the goal of every junior player, including their parents. Their parents should be promoting that goal. And look, and if uh, and if and, and if your son or daughter is the you know the one of the billion, like the Rafa Nadal or the uh, 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 
uh, you know, uh, the Roger Federer's or, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, of the, of the girls that broke through at 15, the, the, the Gracie Everts of the world, you know, the Monica Sellers of the world. You know, look, believe me, you know, we will all hear about that, you know, your kid is that one zero point zero 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 one percenter. Okay, because at 15, all of those great players broke through and they fell into the top hundred, you know, by by helicopter. You're already a 15, you're a top hundred player in the world, top 80 in the world. You know, mm-hmm. some are already top, you know, 10 or 5 or whatever in the world. So there's nothing what the parents did. It was the geniality of the kids. You know, I often say, coaches don't make champions, players do. And if the player is that champion, that we, but you know, we see the top guys, the top girls that are the champions. You know, no, no coach is going to make that that player be a champion. It's the player that made himself or herself be a champion. And at 15 years old, guess what? They already broke through. You know, all of the Unitanas, and now they're already playing. You know, they're beating people that are you know in the top hundred in the world at 15 years old, and nobody taught them that. It's that that that. That's why they are called the greats, the greats of our sport. Okay, so let's talk. Let's talk about since you just mentioned professional tennis. What parents need to realize is that our game has only one hundred pros. They think that you know the ATP uh, rankings, you know, ranks five thousand players. You know, they're professional players. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. Okay, out of five thousand ranked players. There are 4,900 that are pretending to become professionals. They're not professionals. They're playing futures and playing challengers. They're, they're, they're losing sight of what tennis is all about. They're becoming psychos out there, most of them. They become playing people that are, you know, just, uh, they, more people get hurt in the minor leagues in tennis than people realize. Okay. I've seen it, been there, done that, just understand that that there are only 100 players that are professional. Because if you are top 100, then you can get in to the top professional tournaments, right? The top, the top, the top tournaments. And even today, where prize money are just ridiculous compared to like, you know, I mean, look, you know, Rash won $18,000 in 68 to win Wimbledon. I mean, uh, that's just, you know, now it's like, what, three and a half million, four million to win Wimbledon? So, so, but, but, you take a look at the number 100 player in the world, they're still making, depending on what country, you know, they are from. Uh, if you are from a country that you can get more sponsorships, you know, fine. But if you're in a country like America, you know, you're number 100, you're not going to get many, many, many sponsorships. But, you know, uh, the, the guy's like 100 in the world. He's making, what, 300 grand or something like that? 400 grand? It costs you 250, 300 to play the game. I mean, so you're not really making money. I mean, you know, at the end of the day. Our game is like the, um, as I call it, is like uh, uh, it, 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 it's like third world. You know, very few have a bunch, and the majority have nothing. That's really what our game is. And so, for parents to think that they've got a kid that's twelve, thirteen, that they're going to do everything, they're going to spend money with, with coaching and with this and this, so that they can become a Rafa Nadal or become a, you know, a, a Chris Everett. 
come on. You're just basically, you've got to have a, a dose of reality real quick. One thing, uh, Carlos, just I love how you're chronological with uh, the years and talking about your journey. Uh, it was 82 in the CT120, Bill Jacobs' Computennis came out. In 85, I was a guest. I was teaching tennis in Germany, but it, I was a guest at Robbie and Roger Seguzo. Robbie was on the team. I didn't have a, speak, yeah. a speaking part, and obviously Arthur Ashe, class act. But the person who was doing the most talking was Herb Crickstein, Aaron's dad. But Bill right. Jacobson was there. And I'm just <laughs> thinking, you know, and even to this day, you know, it's not only the stats, but the right stats. So Seguzo being a great competitor, he was telling Arthur, let me play, let me play Becker, let me play Becker. Came down to the last match. Mm-hmm. And, and Aaron Crickstein, obviously a great, great player. But um, so... You know, Robbie was just begging to play. That's just a sign of a really good competitor. And he didn't get to play. But I remember in one one word um, with uh, Bill, Bill Jacobson, I was talking to him because, you know, we were just hanging out and he said he should put Robbie in because Aaron's mm-hmm. not, not going to force. In just one mm-hmm. word. I was at a tournament with my son. He was a challenger. And it was a, a, a good win for me. Beat a kid who had, had won the Orange Bowl and... And, uh, you know, I like, you know, of course my son played at the Orange Bowl, but we've had kids win the Orange Bowl and we've had kids that, that didn't play the Orange Bowl that beat kids that played the Orange Bowl. So I got in a little trouble where I, I thought that everybody was thinking I was just yelling fight, but I just yelled out to my son force. So really I, I coached him. I, I said, I only, I only yelled at once. My son, no, he yelled out three or four times. But Jimmy Connors, um, when he lost to Borg, he was up four love in the fifth. And they they didn't want he didn't like to watch himself on TV, but they Warney Kuehl, they they forced him to get in front of the TV. He's standing next to the TV, just screaming. So when he was playing Borg at the open, and he was you know pushing his hands like he was you know to, you know to go to the net, people thought Connors was just yelling fight fight, but he was yelling force force, and he mm-hmm. and he turned that around. But a lot of people just don't understand that. Um, with little kid tennis and big kid tennis are two different sports. But coming back to well, look, go I, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, you know, like I, I, you know, I love the thing lines. I mean, you know, people have to understand that our sport is so unique that uh, you know it's one of the few sports, if it, 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 not the only sport, that you can actually win a match by winning less points than the opposition. I mean, you know, you can't do that in basketball or football or or any other sport. You got to end, you know, you got to end up with more more points than the opposition to win in other sports. Well, guess what? You can win less points in tennis and still win. That shows that every point is not the same. Doesn't count the same in our game. We undoubtedly have bigger points than others. Okay, that that if you know how to identify those points and be able to have the right, you know, sort of a strategy and tactic and, and think during those 15 minutes that you're not hitting the ball on how to play the next point uh, properly and win those big points, guess what? You can end up winning the match without and not and not and, and, and still winning last points in the opposition. That's that, that's that's how that's how mental our game is. When you take a look at the way I put the the, the game in perspective that you hit you hit in the every hour of match, you're hitting ten minutes. And you're not hitting for 50 minutes. That means that basically the game is five times more mental than physical and technical, isn't it? Just by the pure 10 minutes, you know, out of the 60 minutes is when you are executing. The other 50 minutes, you're not executing physically or, or, or technically, but you're in the match. So, so we've got to look at the game 
you know, from the competitive side and the and the points, the big points. The other thing that developing juniors need to need to understand that a John McEnroe, for instance, you know, understood clearly back when he was even a, a, a very young player, you know, is that most of the junior players, you know, uh, uh, because of their, their lack of maturity, personal maturity and competitive maturity, they are really playing what I call meat tennis in those 15 minutes. Instead of utilizing the 15 minutes, you know, the way that the great players utilize, the players that are not great, they play me tennis. That means that the moment the last point is over, the kid is thinking, ah, you know, I mean, I can't believe I missed that. My back is, you know, is not doing well today. My racket is, you know, is stranger to lose. My shoe is, is too tight. And, you know, not 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Oh, God. So I can't believe my back is, my back is me, me, me. And all of a sudden, it's like 20 seconds gone by. So he's, you know, 25 seconds. And he's, a, and he's either returning or serving without even considering the opposition. Well, I've got news for, for those that do that play me tennis. Great players don't play me tennis. They play opponents tennis. You know, the moment that that last point is over, they react to the last point because they're not computers. You know, we're all we're all humans, so we do have you know emotions. So they will react to the last uh, that point either you know wow, I can't believe you missed that or you know Rafa you know famous you know vamos. But how long does it take? Does it take? that emotion because I have a rule three seconds you can only react to the last point for three seconds after the point is over because you've got a clock now a stopwatch that is ticking and it's ticking for 25 seconds and if you use three seconds of that 25 for your emotion at the last point you're already pushing the clock okay and you better just get out of playing tennis and now you have 22 seconds to figure out how you're going to play the next point. But the kids don't even know how to get out of that meat tennis. They just keep on keep on playing the meat tennis throughout the whole 25 seconds. And then once they change over, you know, they have 90 seconds to change over. They're still playing meat tennis while they're sitting out there in that chair. How, how many times do you see the, the kids you know, sitting in the chair and still complaining about this and about that? Playing meat tennis. They're not, even, they're not even playing the opponent's tennis. They take the game personally. You know, it's become a personal battle. I've always said tennis is not a personal battle. Tennis is an impersonal game. If you don't treat that as an impersonal game, you are lost in our game. If you take this game into a personal, take it personal, you're not a competitor. Okay, that's, let's just make let's make a few things clear here for those that 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 are listening that may not have thought about those those things I just said. So the question becomes: How do you get out of that reaction? of the last point. How do you stop in the three seconds from keep on going for the 25 seconds? Easy. There's a key. The key is simple. The key is how did he or she across the net is react to the last point. That's more important to the competitor is how the opponent is reacting to the last point than what you are reacting to the last point. This is what the greatest competitors our game do. They will re- they'll, they'll have a, an emotional reaction for the last point three seconds. On the fourth second, they're already figuring out how that guy across the net or that girl across the net is feeling about that about about that last point. They, they they've got a they got a they got their finger on their pulse. They're they're they're, they're feeling their pulse right there. Kids today don't even know if the kids 
twisted an ankle, you know, on the last point. Because they didn't even look at the, at, at, they didn't even feel the opponent. They're just so enthralled in themselves playing these tennis. So, you know, those are the kind of things. I mean, you know, when you, when you, when you learn how to dissect those 50 minutes and learn how you're going to use those 50 minutes in those 90, that, that it's, those 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 fifty minutes that are comprised of the twenty five seconds and the and the changeovers the ninety seconds. When you learn how to utilize, you know, ninety percent of those those not those fifty minutes, yeah, you can you can you can win a lot of matches because you know very few opponents will be utilizing those fifty minutes the way that you are, and that's why the great players are great players. Brandon. Yeah, one word. Just I, I know you you mentioned it there uh, again. Uh, the word self reliance, and you talked about uh, independence, and and uh, I have have to believe that the parenting, um, the parenting of some of the top players, they they must focus on their children becoming more self reliant, and uh, I think that's probably a a big telltale if they are quote unquote playing me tennis or playing opponent tennis um, is just the ability to think for yourself and problem solve versus being told what to do all the time or no be, question. being spoon fed is that, that, that no ability. Question. And so, so, you know, I think it's, you know, first of all, it's great to, to listen to you uh, and all the experiences you have, but it's great that you're putting so much energy into the parenting side of the game. Cause I think that's a, that's a massive, a massive need that uh, a lot of a lot of people do have. Um, but no, just I was, I, I did, I did, you know, stick with that word after you mentioned it in regard to McEnroe um, and how he was as a, as a young person, and I think that's so important. Well, look, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that this, uh, so this, this thing that I put together right now, I mean, uh, and I'm not, by, by the way, I'm, I'm not promoting, I'm, I'm not here to advertise or promote or anything like that. I, I'm just. I'm just humbled, to be frank with you, mm. that, you know, after all these years, I, I, I retired, you know, uh, in uh, 2016, and uh, that was my last chance, 33 years, Steve and Brendan, you, you know, I mean, you know, 33 years, I was running camps all over the world, I mean, every summer, it was, you know, I went to thousands of kids in the camp, and mm. you can imagine how many parents, you know, <laughs> that I had to deal with, you know, through, throughout my life, and then, you know, in 2016, I retired, and, um, um, and and I, I had my fill in tennis. I I, I was proud of uh, you know the work that I did with my son, and 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 it was time for me to to just uh, uh, get out of the game. And um, and then you know it started to go to Colombia and see you know the work that, that Joshua is doing with his players, and I started to get that you know that itch again, you know, and start getting psyched again about you know those players, you know the way he was developing the players and. And, and the way that, you know, his energy on the court with those players, the way that the players were responding. And I just started, like, to get all psyched again. And then, you know, got last year, I said, um, I said you know, I miss, man. I miss, I miss the kids. I miss helping the kids. I miss helping the parents understand, you know, the perspective, how to keep this thing in perspective. I, I miss. You know, he says, listen, you know, you don't have the energy, physical energy anymore at 70 years old to, to be out there the way you were on the courts in the hot sun for your whole life. But uh, why don't you try to do something? I mean, online right now, you know, and share, you know, all of this stuff that you went through, you know, online. I said, well, you know, I don't know how to do that. And that's when Josh started to, you know, help me develop this, 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 this project. And we worked on this project 
literally for the last year. And I'm humbled, not only, uh, you know, for the support of my family, you know, not just Josh, but, you know, my, my whole family. So, yeah, you know, let's get you back there. Let's, uh, let's get, let's get this thing, you know, done. But I feel humbled about people like yourselves, you know, old friends that are coming. I mean, so many people have just came to me like this within the last few months and said, I heard about what you're doing, man, you know, more power to you. And I'm there, you know, I want to be there, you know, on this course, I want to watch this. So that gives me the energy, you know, that um, maybe I can keep going for another 50 years. And, you know, with all this energy. (laughs) That's great. 50 years. I love it. With uh, We'll have to uh, have your son on as a guest. I know, um, I'll come back to Brandon's point, your father, grandfather, but to Dr. Josh, I know I was uh, at the NCAAs where he had a, a young player, uh, one of his players won the uh, NCAAs, and then the next year I think he had a player amazing. in the uh, finals, right? A amazing, champion, amazing, amazing. Yeah, amazing, amazing feats, you know, that, uh, that, that he's been able to achieve. And, you know, people, people all the time say, you, know, you must be so proud of Josh's accomplishments. You know, in terms of that, uh, so let's make it very clear. You know, I'm very proud of Josh, but it has nothing to do with tennis and his tennis accomplishments. You know, I'm proud of Josh for who he is as a person. And and you know what? At the end of the day, you can only really, you know, have success uh, uh, in, 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 in college tennis. Uh, you know, if, if the coach is a coach anyway, you know, if, if, if the coach preaches, you know, character, you know, and discipline, and, and just like Chuck Christie, you know, did. I'll give you a little, a little, a little um, uh, of the side story right here about Chuck that you had that, that, you, that you're very familiar with, and you had in your podcast book. So when Josh, right, for those that don't understand, you know, don't don't know know this, you know, I basically use reverse psychology with Josh. So you know, here I had, you know, my cancer started in 1984. You know, Josh is from 1979, so he basically was five years old. I mean, when when I started my tournament of tennis camps, and as you remember, you know, down in those in those days, the camp was like ten weeks long during the summer, and every session we had like seventy kids. You know, it's like a mammoth, you know, undertaking with those kids that were actually living with us uh, during during uh, ten weeks. Most of them came for not one week. And even though there was weekly sessions, they stayed there for there many of them that stayed the whole summer with us, years. And uh, and now I've got my own kids that are six years old. And uh, all of these other kids out there say, hey, when is Josh going to start playing? When is Josh going to play? So I used re- reverse psychology and I said, uh, Josh, forget about tennis, okay? You know, you, you, you know, I'm, you know you're, you're half Brazilian, you have half Brazilian blood in you. you, you, you Soccer, soccer is your deal. I mean, you know, I used to take him to Brazil to big soccer games in the big stadiums, and I used to tell him how beautiful this is compared to our game. Our game is boring. So I used complete reverse psychology with Josh, and Josh used to then tell everybody in the camp as he was growing up that, nah, I'm not a tennis player. I'm a, I'm a soccer player. I'm, I'm going to be a soccer player. So he gets to be 10 years old. He's not playing tennis. People say, well, when are you going to you know, stop playing? Nah, I'm a soccer player. 12 years old, I'm a soccer player. Uh, for 13 years old, soccer player. Now, that year, between 13 and 14, from being a little boy, he grew, basically. I could almost look at, it, at, at him eye to eye. And his foot went from size, like, you know, maybe, I don't know, nine. He all of a sudden was like size 12, you know, 12, 12 and a half. I mean, in one year. 
uh, adolescence, right? All the hormones right there, like we talked about it. Right? And, uh, and then, um, you know, one morning I'm, you know, basically, um, uh, uh, talking to him, getting him out for, for school, he says, um, you know, Dad, he was 14 years old, he says, you know, Dad, I'm quitting soccer, and I want to I wanna do the camp. Can I do the camp this summer? I said, uh, excuse me? He says, yeah, I'm quitting soccer, and uh, I want to spend the, the summer, you know, playing, you know, doing the camp. I mean, I have never done the camp. I want to do the camp. I said, Josh, I want you to know that, you know, I will never forget today, and if you do, I'm going to remind you. Because you are saying that you want to quit playing soccer and that you want to do the camp and start playing tennis. Is that what I just heard? He said, yeah. He didn't know how big that was. I did. Well, he started did the camp when he was 14 years old, played some other you know, little tournaments. First tournament he played was 14 years old. So, so for, you, for you to have an idea on how I designed by design, you know the the, the the my my own son um, uh, uh, journey in in, 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 in in junior tennis. I kept him away from the game until he was fourteen years old. And when he was fourteen, he decided to own the game, his game, and he decided to become the player that he became. So, for parents that think, well, that is ridiculous. This will never happen today. You know, I mean, it can happen today. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Because the by the time Joshua was like 16, a couple of years later, you know, he was already playing Kalamazoo and beating guys. I'm not going to, you know, brag about names here, but but guys that were like already top players since they were 12, 14. And then by the time they were 16, they were seasoned players, okay? But they were all burned out by that time. And Josh was drooling, you know, to, to, to become a player, you know, at, at 16. So, so. So it was very interesting to see how I did it, you know, because of my position in games and how, you know, he worked because Josh then assumed responsibility for his own game at a very young age when he was 14. He was conducting himself like, uh, you know, this is my thing, my thing and I want this. I want to do this, you know? So I've never, I, I didn't even go watch him play tournaments. I did take him to Kalamazoo once. Was um, he when he played Davis Cup, you know, I didn't even go watch him play Davis Cup. Did I want to? Yeah, of course I did. But it was part of my deal, you know, with Josh. This is your deal, man. This is your deal. You assume the responsibility. I'm not going to be the helicopter parent out there. You know, you're not playing for me. You're not playing for me. And, and, and whatever you're doing, you're doing for yourself. So, so it, it, it was a very healthy way of going through the journey. And, um, you know, by the time he was, uh, you know, being recruited, uh, you know, to go to college, um, you know, he was already one of the top juniors in the country. So he had options, not only because of his position in the rankings at that point, but also the games that, you know, that, that, he, that he had because he never pushed the ball, because he never played 12s and 10s, and, you know, and, and so he never pushed, you know, to use a player. He was, he was hitting the ball. He was, he was hitting the ball. And then uh, college, college coaches wanted that kind of player. Oh, yeah, that's the kind of kid I want. I mean, I want him to come over here because I can, I can make the player become a college player. And uh, so he had choices. So he, I remember that he came to me and he said, uh, you know, he went to visit, you know, all several schools, you know, went to California to visit California schools, went to Miss uh, Ole Miss, because, you know, Ole Miss was like number two in the country back then. Uh, you know, uh, the assistant coach used to work for us in the camp. And, 
Anyway, we had deep connections with these colleges. And he came to me and says, Dad, I'm just completely lost. I mean, I've visited all these colleges. All these colleges are great. I don't know where to go. Help me out here, man. Where, what, what should I do? I said, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Let's go back to when you were 14. Remember that? You said that you wanted to play tennis, right? Yeah. I okay, well, let me tell you this. It's your game. You're going to have to make this decision of where you're going to go to college because I am not going to make any, my opinion, to you of where you should go to college because I play college tennis and I know that all four years are not going to be rosy four years. There will be a year that you're going to get hurt. There will be a year that you're going to have a problem with the coach. There's going to be a year that you have a girlfriend. There's going to be some, 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 some challenges in your four years. And I do not want to hear you calling me and saying, well, you told me to come over here. I say, I'm out of it. This decision. That's your decision and you live with it. Okay, man. Okay. The next day, he comes back to me and he says, uh, you know, I've been thinking. I want to become a professional player. And if I want to become a professional player, I'm going to have to really turn my body into the best athlete that I can be. I've got to become an animal because, you know, I mean, these guys that are playing out there are just, they're, they're physical animals out there. And, and I'm not. I mean, I'm just skinny. I'm just growing, growing like crazy. You know, I'm 17 and I'm still, you know, skinny. And I've got to, you know, I've got to become, you know, a major athlete. And, um, and I think that there's only one guy that is going to make me become the best athlete that I can be. And that's Chuck. And I'm going to go play for Chuck. I said, good. I'm glad to hear it. And you do know, right, that Chuck is not going to make it easy on you, right? You've got to know that going in, right? Because, yeah, I know. And this is what I want. So when he called Chuck and gave the news, Chuck immediately called me and says, I can't believe this. You know, I never thought that Joshua was going to choose me. I mean, I tried to recruit Josh, but I knew that he had other options. And I can't believe that he chose me. I said, not only he chose you, but he chose you without any, uh, any, any, any influence from me. So he says, well, look, I will take care of your son like this is my own. And, and that is still very emotional to me because that's what he told me. So um, a couple of years go by, and of course, you know, Inevitably, uh, Josh has got a little down here and uh, gets in a little conflict out there with Chuck and all that. And then Josh is calling me and says, oh, yeah. I said, I don't want to hear it, man. We talked about it a couple of years ago. Well, I want to hear it. It's your deal. You deal with Chuck. Chuck would call me and say, hey, Carl, I'm, you know, I'm trying to talk to you. Chuck, do you remember that when we talked about it? You know, you're going to treat my son like your son, right? Don't come in and talk to me, man. You're the father now. You deal with him. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> That's how Josh went through in college. So, so my point is, is that I don't think there is uh, a guy that is more capable, you know, of call of coaching college kids than my son. Because you know what, he did it on his own way, and he's still doing his own way, you know. And he's and he's doing it because he loves it, and because he's knowledgeable, and because he is capable. I mean, you know, because he did it, you know, and so. So the players that are there, you know, with him, they're very lucky, you know, because, uh, and they appreciate that very much. I mean, the kid that you're talking about, you know, Paul Chubb, that's another story. I mean, that anybody here that is listening, please Google Paul Chubb's story. I mean, Josh is out there in Wimbledon 
trying to recruit Celestino players. And uh, Peter Fleming tells him, and says, you know, there's a kid from the hall. He's four hours north of London, way up north in England, that is skinny, you know, came over here to the LTA program, not good enough, to, you know, uh, to be in the, in, the, in the program. But I think the kid has got a huge heart. And he, and he needs to go to college in the United States. And I hope you, you, you go out there and check him out and give him a chance. And Josh says, okay, man, you know, let me give him a call. So Josh picks up a train, goes all the way up to Hall, four hours, you know, north of London, and go meet with this guy's coach and meet this guy, this kid. And he learns the story about this kid, you know, which is the story that, oh, I mean, you know, it'll make you cry if you hear, you know, Paul Jobs you know, upbringing the way he grew up. And Josh kind of felt, you know, just, oh, I got it. I got to help this kid. And he brought the kid over. The kid played number six in his freshman year. And Josh thought that maybe the kid would win a few matches at six. The kid won all the matches at six in his freshman year. By his sophomore year, he was winning all the matches at three. By his junior year, he won all, most, I think he lost twice to Nuno, to Nuno uh, from Mississippi uh, 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 State, and he beat Nuno in the final of the NCAA. That's what happened with, with Paul Job. Another great story. Amazing. With, uh, going back to Brandon's uh, question on parenting, uh, for years uh, I've said, you know, and this is not an anti-Semitic remark, that Jewish moms are the best coaches in the world they cultivate yeah. achievement. You're going to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or you'll die. I know that uh, Mark uh, McEnroe is a lawyer, but your old roommate, Chuck Creasy, uh, I think it'd be an assignment for some of our young coaches or even players. He told so many uh, stories, but he kept saying, my mother used to say, my mother used to say, so if you could share one thing that you learned from your mother, what would it be? No, my mom, my mom was left. My mom was all about love. It's still today. I mean, you know, so, you know, uh, certainly my father, obviously, was a wonderful father as well, uh, uh, rest in peace. But, um, but he was like uh, Mr. Mack, you know. I mean, he was an achiever, you know, a, you know, a self-made man, just like Mr. Mack, you know. I mean, and, uh, you know, went to law school on his own, just like Mr. Mack did. And, and he, he, needed, he wanted to instill that in me, you know, just like Mr. Mack. You know, wanted to do the same for his three boys. They all were going to become lawyers, and not only just lawyers. But, you know, Mr. Matthews and Bill, but they are going to go support them, too. You know, that's the way you went to, you know. And uh, obviously, Mark was the only one that became a lawyer. And uh, and people don't even know that Mark used to be a big player as well, the information. Mark was a, is the tallest of all three. Uh, and uh, he used to play great tennis, you know, uh, you know, in his junior year. He was there in the academy as well. But, uh, but uh, you know, never was, uh, you know, as quick as, 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 as Mac was. Mac was, uh, you know, a tremendous athlete, you know, uh, from, from playing soccer, basketball, and multi-sports like Andrew was talking about. And, uh, and, 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 and Mark was a, a different type of uh, physicality. I mean, he was a lot taller and therefore, you know, slower on the court. And, you know, and that, takes, that, that takes a lot more effort to tennis when you're in junior tennis when you when you're throwing that much like Mark did. Patrick, on the other hand, was like a little guy, you know, uh, that uh, you know, the executive was bigger than him. I remember him walking down 
sport when he was nine, ten years old with a you know the racket, and just uh, by the time he's like what, or something like that, you know, his brother's like number one in the world. Imagine the pressure that 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 Patrick, you know, was growing up. Talk about my son growing up, you know, with the pressure of me being around, you know, those guys. Imagine, you know, being the little brother of, of John McEnroe, you know, uh, and try to play to your standards. And Patrick did a phenomenal, phenomenal job in junior tennis. I don't know, people don't realize that Patrick, uh, Patrick, you know, got to the finals of the US Open. You know, he was top three junior in the world, you know, being the brother of the, the best player in the world. That was uh, incredible what he did. Then he went to Stanford, of course, you know, was played the, the great college tennis, but nothing, you know, nothing super. And then he turned pro. And uh, because, you know, I mean, when, you, when your last name is McEnroe and your brother is, 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 is this genius of our game, you know, that helped uh, Patrick, you know, get started in the pros and got a few wild cards and, and the pressure that was too much for him in the pros. I mean, you know, much more than, than he felt it when he was actually growing up as a junior. And he felt a lot more pressure when he was out there in the pros on his own. And, um, and he was actually ready to quit. You know, uh, you know, in '89, actually, and uh, go to to law, to law school, and uh, and um, you know, and that whole thing changed. He called me up and he came to the camp in uh, in Lauderdale, and uh, and he said, I, I just want to go down there and hit some balls with uh, you know with your kids and, and with you, and I just I just need to I need to, I need to do well the game again, man. You know, I just uh, you know I got to the point where I'm just losing, and uh, I just I just don't love I don't love the game anymore. So he came down and uh, and was great for the camp because uh, you know he brought in you know Luke uh, and uh, uh, you know so many guys that you know were with him trying to trying to play in those days and and the kids had a lot of fun you know seeing these guys you know living with them you know out there in the camp for weeks and uh, and then after that summer you know lots of starting lots of starting matches and making you know, guys understand also the numbers and the aggressive margin and serves and performance and you know lots of charting uh you know and then um, and then the idea was for me to hey let's go out uh, you know this fall just uh, you know for a couple of tournaments we can kind of carry on you know we this this work that we did here in the camp uh you know i had the two teenagers as kids my daughter was 15 josh was probably 13 at that point or something like that and I said, Pat, I can't, I can't go out there again. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not in the, 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 the stage of my family right now needs me, and I can't, uh, I can't be out there traveling. He says, Oh, just a couple, a couple of, couple of days. and those couple of tournaments, I think, turned out to be almost two years. But it was a great run. Um, you know, uh, when when we started out there, it was like in the 900s, and uh, by the time I Finally, um, you know, uh, stepped down. Uh, he was 28 in the world. He had gotten to the to the semis of the Australian, um, uh, lost to Becker there, then beat Becker here in my Open a month later. Uh, you know, he was playing, you know, top top major ball. You know, by that by that time, and it was wonderful to see, you know, uh, Patrick uh, making that turn around in his life, in his in his things life. That's where he had the famous line where. Uh, the semis is just what you expected. It was kind of like Becker, Edward. Exactly. I can't remember the yeah. fourth, but McEnroe. Mm -hmm. With, uh, exactly yeah, right. you mentioned Luke. Uh, yeah, Luke Jensen would be the same age group. I remember being in France and watching those guys play the French juniors with, yeah. um, but 
Carlos, it's been fantastic to have you on. Uh, let's just wind this thing down here. Brennan, you got one more question? Yeah, I'll echo what Steve said, and just uh, incredible to listen to you talk about the game and, and hear a little more about your you know your personal backstory and your experiences. Um, I I just I'm someone who likes to piece together the, the the puzzle, and I think just listening to all your experiences and different things that have happened in your life, you seem to be someone who's just had this ability to uh, think on your feet and figure a lot of things out. Um, you're you're really a, a a tennis polymath in terms of the different things you've done and. And, uh, yeah, I think that's incredible. And I think, uh, just being able to be thrown on the court with John McEnroe and kind of first day and figure it out, you know, be thrown into, to a position of, uh, say the director of tennis and just figure it out. And I think another brilliant thing is to figure out that there needed to be a book written about junior competitive tennis. And so, um, in, and now of course what you're doing uh, as well is, is, uh, is excellent, but, um, I'm just wondering if you have any advice for tennis coaches out there. I know we talk a lot about players and parents and we talk about the college game and professional game, but tennis coaches who who might be looking to have uh, a similar ability like you, you have, have had to, to go from being more focused in the player development side of the game to then, you know, being a little more focused on becoming a more involved in the business side of the game. Um, is there anything in particular that helped you make that transition, uh, you know, into your career? That's a great question because uh, uh, I've always, you know, Brendan, I've always preached that, that that the best coach for a player, you know, it's not um, uh, by resume, you know, mm. it's about it, it, it's about commitment, you know, and um, maybe that's my advice to uh, to coaches is that. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, basically, you know, all the resumes that, you know, that, that the coaches try to uh, try to develop, uh, you know, I coach so-and-so, I coach so-and-so because I can coach you. And, uh, you know, that it becomes so so competitive out there mm-hmm. because of who you coached and this and that. And I don't think that that's where it's where at, particularly, particularly when you talk, when, when it comes to, to, to junior tennis. You know, when it comes, when it comes to, yeah, I mean, the, the professional coaches out there, it's a, it's a mess. I mean, you get you, you walk into those, uh, you know, those locker rooms out there, you know, in, you know, in the, in the professional tour. I mean, uh, you know, the, you know, the scene. I mean, you know, uh, one coach is coaching this player, you know, this year, and uh, you know, and he's already like, uh, you know, making making sure that he's he's looking for his next uh, his next player, you know, and the next year he's, he's already looking at the next player. So. It's a it's a different world out there. Okay, in a professional, you know, coaching professional. Uh, I I I did that, but you know, uh, my my heart is in is in helping kids and parents and in in coaches of junior players. That's where my heart is. Not coaching professional. You know, Carlos. Either done that, didn't like it. Carlos. So what our listeners. Um they just go to uh, Tournament Tough online. I know I... You, you... Actually, that, yeah, well, actually, TournamentTough.com, you know, and then the information is there, TournamentTough.com. is about the, uh, the, about, about what, what our, the new project, the Tournament Tough Online. is a great... Look, once again, I'm sticking my neck out there and doing something that has not been done, okay? I mean, what's being done mm-hmm. so far online has, is basically, you know, consulting and, and, and mentoring and, and, and all of that kind of stuff that we know, right? But but this is a course. This is a course that starts with the you know there are modules that are, is a progressive course that basically deals you know with uh, these 
five tenets right here. You know, player self-reliance, when we talked about it. You know, the 50 minutes, the competitive skills of the player, the effective margins, working shots, you know, integration of balance, and then college tennis. You know, what does it take to play college tennis? You know, and then my son, I'm so proud. My son even have, has a video. Because it, 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 these, these sessions, these interactive sessions, that there are five interactive sessions, you know, that I'm going to be, it start next this coming Monday, by the way. I'm so excited. And, uh, you know, so I've got everything ready my, in my computer. And, uh, the platform is phenomenal. The platform that, that we're using is that uh, the you know, folks from UCF, right here, University of Central Florida, uh, is the one that, that did design the platform. It's the same platform that the professors of colleges use to, you know, to, to do the online courses. So uh, you can have a bunch of kids, you know, uh, 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 you know, sign up, sign into the course, and use an interactive. So what they do is they basically uh, listen to uh, a couple of videos uh, before the session, and then uh, they uh, write down three to five questions. And then when the interactive session starts with me leading the interactive sessions with all the kids and parents and coaches, um, each kid starts answer, asking their questions that have been related to the video, the two videos that they watch before the session. And that's how this interactivity begins. And we start dealing with those topics of that particular session. Then the, the, the folks uh, uh, that, that run the platform, they unlock the next two videos for the next session. So the kids and the parents, they, they look at the videos again, they watch the videos, and then we go to the interactive the next day. And uh, we deal with those topics. And then by the end of the week, you know, it's a Monday through Friday, and by the end of the week, you know, there is a graduation, which I can't, you know, there's a progressive uh, sort of a, of a course. So, you know, it, it hasn't been done. I'm excited to do it, and, um, and, uh, and, and it's sticking my neck out there. So I'm running this pilot right now because, uh, you know, we've got the kids from all over the world. We've got kids from Australia. We got kids from Denmark. We got kids from London. We got kids from the East Coast. We got kids from the West Coast. We got kids from the Midwest. I mean, it's beautiful. You know, all of these great coaches, friends of mine, when they found out what this is all about, they said, "Ah, I'm going to send a couple of my kids." Okay, thank you very much. Ah, I'm going to send. You know, we got people all over the day. So I'm just humble. You know, I'm really humble, and I'm so happy, excited. So Monday starts, and uh, by the end of the week. We'll get through it. Uh, I think that, um, you know, everybody's going to enjoy it. I'm going to certainly enjoy it. And then, you know, it's, it, we're going to basically use this uh, this, this next uh, um, um, week course, you know, to also uh, hear the reviews, I mean, you know, and find out how we can tweak it, you know, because uh, scheduling is always a problem when you're doing interactivity like I'm doing, obviously. And so we need to make sure that, you know, we, we, we understand what that means, you know, the, uh, the how to schedule these interactive uh, sessions and, and make it um, make it you know convenient and um, and then I'm going to launch this thing in the summer you know so it's not launched yet by the way you know so this is like what we're doing right now it's a it's a, it's a pilot program next week and then uh, by the summer I will have a, a full schedule and then Carlos is back you know uh, working again in, in junior tennis that's fantastic tournament tough <laughs> tournament tough.com uh, it's been fantastic <laughs> yeah. to have you on so many golden nuggets uh, this podcast in itself is a course um you know people can push the pause button and write write down notes mm-hmm. i think to hear it is to forget it the rate of the rate of uh learning is very slow the rate of forgetting is out, outright scary but 
Um, what we're trying to do is just reinforce messages from days gone by. And it's, uh, it's great that uh, you're going to have this project and it's great to connect. Um, you certainly had a, a great influence on my tennis, but also the, the tennis of all, all the people I've taught to teach. Uh, they certainly have a, a good handle on uh, tournament tough and your contributions, but now it's uh, ready to go back and uh, be reconnected. So I guess no pun intended with uh, how the internet works to be connected. Yeah, well, exactly. But I appreciate being here and uh, and and being with you guys. And uh, look, I've followed you guys since you started in Tyler. Okay, I, I took my head off of you when you started started back in Tyler. I said, I can't believe this guy is actually making a course, you know, uh, for tennis pros. I mean, you know, that's brilliant. You know, I mean, you know, you, you go to college, but you never really took tennis, and you actually did it. Congratulations! I I don't think I've ever congratulated you in in public. I wanted to congratulate you in, in, in now today for the incredible achievement that you made. Well, no, thanks. I do think that our governing body of tennis, USTAU, um, you know, I know Scott Schultz has resigned or retired at this point, but I remember meeting with him. He was in charge of that project. Um, I don't think enough insiders really realize that, that what we had was uh, information from, as you mentioned, Lair and Grapple and, and Jacobson, yourself, uh, Enemir, Braden, Hopman. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. with Hopman, it was, uh, as you know, it was not so much uh, information, but you know, you had to understand the discipline and the work ethic. Uh, it's oh, been yeah. fantastic to have you on. I'd love to have you on again. We'd like to talk to your son as well, um, because that's very, very important to us. Is um, your son is the next generation? I know now he's probably in his early forties, but um, we had an assistant coach on last week that uh, he's third generation from what we've been trying to share. But um, like, I think that's fantastic, the education versus f- free product. There's so many great pearls from this uh, podcast. But, but, um, but Josh, Josh, is, Josh is putting information tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock uh, Seattle time. He's playing Stanford. Yeah, I saw that. That's where I asked uh, earlier. I asked you, are you are you in Orlando or are you in Seattle? Yeah, uh, yeah hey, the, you know, the indoors. Yeah. You'll be able to watch yeah, the matches, right. right? You'll be able to watch the matches online. Of course, yeah. I, I, I watch all of their matches, you know, through my computer. Yeah, I watch all of their matches, you know. And then and then I try to get up there to, to Columbia, you know, several times during the season so I can see my, my wonderful grandchildren and uh, my daughter-in-law as well. And, uh, and then... Uh, and then I also, um, you know, when they come in to play in Gainesville, when they playing, you know, here in Florida, I, I, I go and watch them too. So that's what, that's what got me the, the itch to get back, you know, into the game again. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. The playing college tennis, uh, I think that's inspiring for the juniors too. It's it's uh, very very difficult to get to that level, and it's uh, yeah. you're, you're so certainly your you're tournamenttough.com will help yeah. out, you know. <laughs> You're not going to get there if you're that. not tournament tough. But Carlos, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Great and you guys you. have a good night. Thank Great. you very much for thank the opportunity. You, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. Let's wrap it up. That was fantastic. I've used that word like five times in the last five seconds. <laughs> That's about all I got is my vocabulary. <laughs> Takeaways. What do you have? 
Uh, another great one, I think, is is we've connected the dots on this one before too. Is uh, all great coaches are lifelong learners. You know, he, he's mentioned he's he's really uh, tried to learn from even his students over the years, um, and so that's uh, one more bonus takeaway. I had one parent, Russ Hamilton, his two daughters, he and his wife are doing a great job. Um, he's listening to the podcast and he's putting, like you said, he's connecting the dots. There's so much history. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, if people are listening, uh, it's uh, quote unquote. I mean, Steve Smith stuff. Use my name in third person. Then Andy Fitzell for two years. I mean, I've known Andy maybe twenty two years, but you know, he worked so hard for two years, and uh, the last, you know, just up to a few months ago. Um, but hopefully, we're more than a snowflake. We're turning into a snowball. You know, maybe one day be a snowman. I don't think we'll ever be an avalanche. But uh, <laughs> so some takeaways for me is don't play me tennis, play opponent tennis. Um, you know, I think also, too, is that experiencing the transition. Get kids to play with a wooden racket. Don't, kid, don't let kids look at a YouTube clip and go, players from years ago, they hit the ball so slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, meant to, I meant to bring this up is that arguments begin and end with the forehand. The only thing people are talking about now is the forehand. Um, I, I mentioned this right before we signed off education versus free product. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I was connected to Bill, Bill Jacobson and Steve Abramson and helped out with Compu Tennis, but I, I didn't know until he to hear uh, Carlos say that it, it really bothered him. Me, 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 free, free, free. What are you going to mm-hmm. give me? What are you going to give me? What are you mm-hmm. give me? And mm-hmm. it's that's really so bad. Um, I think it's true. Um, I haven't seen anything that uh, even comes close to the CT120 that Jacobs put together because as Carlos just said, the apps, they don't really cover that. It's just forcing, it's just uh, winners and unforced errors. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that when he mentioned thinking in analogies, I've come back to the player I was talking to today is that, uh, you know, we're right by a big highway and I think the worse conditions, the better. I mean, he started with Pancho Seguro. Pancho Seguro, um, great player from Ecuador, he used to always say, try to play on the worst courts, try to play on the courts that have the worst lights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're playing where there's so much noise, you can't really hear the ball be hit. But to tell the kid, I think there's more noise inside your head than 12 lanes of traffic. You, you know, you, you can almost hear the kid scream when he plays. Um I do, would like to tell the listeners that that was that noise was not uh, your phone. That was that you have bad bad gas. Is that right, Flanagan? <laughs> take that gas, X. Yeah, there you go. But um, no, I think it was fantastic. Uh, what again? What a personality! You can just tell. I mean, Pied Piper, and the ability to communicate. Um, but when you think of stories um, that he has to share, um, again, golden nuggets. It was great. But podcast number 80, this is one of those podcasts, again, that's good for an international flight. Uh, We get a lot of positive feedback. I I, I should say I do. You're probably not privy to that, but I know people say they don't mind the length of these. For me, um, this was a mini course. If if, if people, if you told a a young coach, old coach, okay, get out pencil, paper, push play, Mm -hmm. push pause. And we need to come back to that. We're 80 deep in these things is... uh, you know, we don't have, I'm not even sure what they call it. They call it, you know, podcasts have notes. Um, there's, there's a buzzword for that. But we really need to go back. We have a lot of people that help us out. So if we just got 10 students, 
that follow the content, you know. And when I when I tell, uh, so yeah, I've worked with this coach. I said, well, this coach has just studied what I've studied because all you know, it's not so much that I'm training the coaches as I just organize organize a lot of information. But we should go back. By the time we get to a hundred, we need to do that, and there should be notes, just bullet points for each of these. Right. Um, Sounds like it, a good job for Mackenzie. Yeah. I think he could start right now, even though it's uh, going going towards midnight. Um, but again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Last word? Number 80, my football jersey number when I was in fourth grade. Number eight, number 80, after the melee in the backfield, makes the tackle. You probably weighed 80 pounds, too. Less than 80. <laughs> Less than 80. Less than 80. Anyway, checking out. Thanks for listening. Thank you. For the betterment of tennis, number 80.